Hey, hey. Hey, what's up? All right, how you doing this week? <laughs> <laughs> Never gets any better, huh? It doesn't. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, that waking up at four-ish, four-something to leave at six Ugh. to be at work at seven-ten is killing me. So, uh, anything you want to kick off with or just jump into the show? Let's jump into the show. Listening to Bruce and Society Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Michael Kane from Brixton to Brexiteer on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the first episode, the inaugural episode, if you will, of the eighth season. Can you believe it's we've gotten that far of Weird wow. Scenes Inside the Gold Mine? Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, born to a poor cockney fishmonger and charwoman, you know, the folks that come around after hours to clean the office, Michael Caine quickly discovered some important things about himself and the world during a then-mandatory stint in the National Service, a shattering of Ivy Tower illusions about communism, and a zest to live each day as if it were your last. Making his way up to the usual bit parts on television and film, his first big break came when casting a fairly major part in a tale of a ragtag band of wounded soldiers against an army nearly 30 times its size in Stanley Baker's Zulu. Not long after, he'd make his way through a trio of films based on, and a few along similar lines to, the gritty, more realistic answer to the James Bond films, Harry Palmer, starring in well-remembered films like Alfie, The Italian Job, Get Carter, and The Destructors, cementing his reputation as a likable, down-to-earth leading man, before lapsing into paycheck jobs like The Swarm, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and The Hand, and more infamous fare like Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill and Jaws for the Revenge, before winding up cast as Alfred in Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises. Somewhat controversial for his years in tax exile and support Brexit, the man nonetheless leaves behind a plethora of memorable film, both in the accepted and camp sense of the word, and to quote the man himself, not many people know that. From Brixton to Brexiteer, the films of Michael Caine. So, uh, like I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, I, I, everybody's a fan of Michael Caine. Like, who is it? And if you're not, what are you doing here? Uh, uh, Michael Caine is, he's been everywhere. He's done so many good things. The funny thing about him, and funny odd as in opposed to funny, ha-ha, the man who wore glasses could be a mean son of a bitch. He, he really gave glasses-wearing people, uh, you know, like, how do we put this? Uh, what I'm trying to say is a lot of people who were younger, grew up around this time period, let's say mid to late 60s, early 70s, you know, they, they had to wear glasses, vision impaired, you know, and... There weren't many heroes or anti-heroes at that time who wore glasses. And along comes Michael Caine, and he's like, no, you look good in glasses. This guy was, <laughs> he got things done. 
And, and don't he, forget, I mean, what you're saying is actually not applicable necessarily today, but pretty recently, you know, it was not long ago that Weezer wrote Buddy Holly. I look just like Buddy Holly, and you look at Mary Tyler Moore, but it's okay anyway. It doesn't matter that we're the geeks. So that kind of geek stigma that kind of uh, he used to push over, take your glasses off so I can shove your face in the mud and all kind of stuff, didn't go away that long ago. We're talking maybe the 90s? Yeah, if that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's that's one aspect. The other thing is, you know, he's, he's a guy from the other side of the tracks. Yes. You know. And one of the first. One of the first to use that well, accent in film. Yeah, one of the first to use, Well, yeah, it's his, his own accent. Much copied. One of the best guys. There's that duo, uh, Rob Dreisen, I forgot the other guy. They do a trip to Italy. They do a trip to here. About two cooks who go on a road trip. But one of the guys in The Walking Dead, one of the tier two actors in that supporting cast, that huge supporting cast, does a really great Michael Caine, too. He's like Christopher Walken, though. You could try it. It's hard to nail it. Yeah. His accent's really interesting, his voice intonations. But anyway, I love this guy. He's, he's done an impressive work, and he was known for doing shit. Yes. But hey, everybody's <laughs> got to eat, right? Yep. But he's done some really really good movies i mean we we did the connery show recently the non-bond films although we did mention bond films we did primarily non-bond films of sean connery we were surprised to find how many of those were okay and good very few were good plus and a lot of them were like ouch yeah but even though admittedly michael k did do some in the late 80s especially (laughs) odd choices And he'll even admit, I did it for money. He still did some great, great films. And just off the cuff, i got to say, doing a lot of these things lately, you know, sometimes I'll discover or rediscover or reassess films that I've seen years ago or, you know, maybe I'd never seen, I'd heard of, and just whatever, seen the trailer and said, ah, it's not for me. And then tried it out. I was like, okay, that wasn't bad. But I have never found so many films from one person that I actually enjoyed and really liked the guy himself in as doing the show. And it's actually started, the reason I picked this one out, you had mentioned it a couple times over the years, like, oh, maybe we should do Michael Caine, maybe we should do Michael Caine. And I was seeing him in other films. Okay, here's films for Donald Sutherland. There he is. Here's films for Sean Connery. There he is. Here's films for whoever the hell else we had done recently. There he is. And over and over, he, I kept bumping into him. It was like, every time, he pretty much stole the show. Like, in The Man Who Would Be King, definitely stole the show. Yeah. So I really, really enjoyed preparing for the show. I was surprised at how many of these guys' films, even the bad ones, were like, okay, you know, I'm good with this guy. This is this was a fun one to do. Yeah, I, I think we didn't discuss too much off air what we're going to delve into too much because he's got a, a good body of work. But yeah. I think we're going to try to hit the high points. Yeah. And anything you didn't see that I saw, we could do like what we usually do. So when I said in the intro that he's become a Brexiteer, we hear stateside will automatically start thinking MAGA hats. And if you're with Remain, I'm sure there's more truth to that than not. But Michael Caine turns out to be a much more complex figure than that. He was a poor cockney, as I mentioned. His father worked at a fish market. The mother was a charwoman. Before going into acting, he did his, at the time, mandatory national service during the Korean War. And interestingly, he went in thinking, hey, communism was great. But, and I quote, the experience left him permanently repelled. A warning I'd like to give a few too many left-leaning friends on social media lately who seem more charmed by that bullshit than they should be. You guys know who you are. Further, he wound up at one point, in a bad way during his time in Korea, where he said he knew he was going to die, and this gave him a renewed appreciation for life being for the living. Or as he says, the rest of my life, I've lived every bloody moment from the moment I wake up until the time I go to sleep. And married to familiar British character actress Patricia Haynes, who is half of the couple who switched bodies 
appearance with Steve and Emma Peel in a memorable Avengers episode, as well as appearing mm-hmm. on similar fare like The Baron, Adam Adamant, Patrick McGowan's Secret Agent, Paul Temple, The Protectors, Special Branch Department S, films like Blood Beast from Outer Space with John Saxon and Virgin Witch. She was everywhere. He later remarried to a Muslim woman, believe it or not, who he more or less stalked into dating him after he saw her in a coffee commercial on TV, if you can believe this. I can believe it. And they've been together since 1973, so much for me, too. Uh, that said, he's among... It's Shakira. He's yeah. among the many forced in the text exile, under the crippling rates spoken to by the Beatles and Taxman, spending several years in the 70s living in the U.S., kind of like the Stones did in France at the same time, only to return under Thatcher's relaxation of same. Which is, honestly, it's understandable if you know just how bad the tax rates were in England during the 60s and 70s. It was really crippling. But more obviously speaking to a conservative orientation in the man. And things got a little more sketchy in the early millennium when the tide shifted again or threatened to. He's kind of threatening or was threatening to go again. And of course, he's got enough of an issue with the EU to stand with Brexit, despite all the financial and international travel and cooperation issues that this is obviously going to cause. On the plus side, though, what I'm reading into it doesn't speak so much to this more questionable nationalist sort of end of that. Certainly not the white power thing that Trump's crowd gravitates towards and empowers, but... You know, it's not exactly a gold star to the guy's name. But we're not here to talk so much about his finances or his political social stance as we are his movies and his character therein, which, for the most part, particularly in the early days, was quite likable and winning, like I mentioned. And for those who prefer the new school, regional accent-friendly school of acting, they really all kind of kicked in in the 80s with the punk comics, you know, guys like the young ones and all that. He certainly represents both inspiration and pioneer, with his proud cockney palaver as far back as the early to mid-60s when everybody else was quite proper Queen's English in approved rata fashion. Supposedly he was an uncredited bit part in The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Yeah, which is a, a fan favorite for many, including myself. I love that movie. I always found it a little dull, slow, but acceptable. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I liked it. <laughs> I liked it because it was it was different at, yes. at, for that time and of that time. Yeah. But you know, three years after that, here he is, and he kind of lucked into a major role in Zulu. It was his first major picture. He got to share the screen with the likes of Nayland Smith himself, Nigel Green, and grumpy old Patrick McGee. The film shows a small group of mostly hospitalized British soldiers defending their fort against an enormous force of hostile tribesmen and managing to survive against the odds. The Zulu even salute them at the end and walk away, which was a really cool part of the movie. The, this is one of those films I remember seeing often as a kid. My father loved this kind of shit. King Solomon's Mines, Gunga Din, Zulu, Zulu Dawn. Naked Prey, Tarzan movies, The Phantom newspaper strip. I enjoyed Jungle Adventures myself, but not to the extent he did. I guess it was a generational thing, but Kane doesn't make a huge impression here, despite his ostensibly major role. And it's a long film. It's fair, but unspectacular. And I'm kind of surprised it was as popular as it was. But it definitely has its merits. Yeah, I, I remember it being very very well received when it first came out mm-hmm. and I remember it being endlessly played on television yes. late nights uh, sometimes split up into parts because it's you know it's three hours plus or something like that and it's good it's very stoic you know it's it's a little stiff that because it calls backward to a time of British colonialism yes. which is uh, interesting that it got made with the budget that it got made with because you know it wasn't until recently that people can actually go back and say, hey, we fucked up, we invaded these people's territories, we took control over them, and we ruled them until we got out because we didn't want to be there anymore either. <laughs> and so Zulu is a very interesting film. Yeah, he, he's effective, and he, he certainly shines, but doesn't stand out too much. Yeah. But oddly enough, he does in the next the next true oh, yeah. movies. So so next up is one of the gems in his ove, and this is his second major film already, so that's pretty quick. It says something about him more than the role itself. 
The Ipcris file is That's... the first of three Harry Palmer pictures that he'd do in the mid to late 60s, which were among the first and most influential of that whole Jean Le Car, Alistair McLean style realistic spy films. There's six, and we'll, we'll get to the, the missing three later, and I did see the other three. Yeah, I didn't want to mention them because I wasn't sure if you saw them or not, and I know I didn't. I did. <laughs> I no, no, I'll mention them later. Go so, ahead. yes, technically he is correct. There are six, but three in the 60s. It's so obviously intended as a sort of commentary on the fantasy fulfillment of the Bond series that the score to this one sounds like a John Barry Bond score through and through. Yes. Pretty Sue Lloyd, who turned up in the Baron TV series not long after, and wound up in Sleazy Affair, like the film Peter Cushing disowned Corruption, one of the handyman slap and tickle films, which I love, and as a scheming lesbian in the wonderfully arched Joan Collins films, The Stud and the Bitch, provides some sex appeal. Nayland Smith himself, once again, Nigel Green, offers a scheming, overbearing boss. Grumpy Scott's Gordon Jackson, later famous as the head of CI5 and The Professionals, is a wily presumed ally. And Kane almost wanders around helplessly lost amidst those who wish him ill on all sides, whether his own people in MI5, their ostensible American allies, or agents of an obvious but unspecified foreign power who just swung an election to take down our own nation. <clears throat> Very moody stuff, often eerily quiet and darkly lit, which works to its advantage in every way, and sadly, its message is well taken, particularly nowadays, which is trust no one. Very, very good film. Well, it's a very good film. Actually, there's a, an attempted brainwashing sequence that's, that's still... Grueling. Gru- yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch, and it must have been really hard to perform in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just comes across that way. And the only, the only thing about Harry Palmer as written <laughs> is that he's a... Yo, he's... Is this the one where it begins where he's making coffee and yes. he's like kind of get his shirts freshened up and yep. there's a girl in bed? Yep. And, you know, he got, he's got his glasses on <laughs> and before he goes to work at the office, which is, you know, the, the man from Uncle Typish uh, cover for the spy agency. Yo, it's sort of like... Harry Palmer's like the bespeckled dick swinging spy that that, <laughs> that James Bond wasn't. Yo, it's... Right. And he's, but he's a bit of a dick with the girls that was always my issue with him <laughs> in these films uh yeah, yeah we're, we're bond of the many bond films there are there there are moments here and there in some of the pictures where you know he actually has feelings for these girls uh the women you know or seems so but <laughs> in the harry palmer pictures you know it's it really comes across rarely I think it goes back to this thing about trying to be a realistic commentary and Bond being, I know the women got issues with Bond nowadays for being the sexist or chauvinist or whatever else, but, you know, my wife loves Bond films, so it's not universal. And, you know, like you said, there is a genuine, at least, I'm enjoying being with this girl and it's kind of mutual thing going on there. You can see in the, the actors and actresses' faces in these roles. Whereas Harry Palmer, like you said, it's more like... Yeah, okay, I'm using you. See you tomorrow. I'll never see you again, really. <laughs> you know, that kind of piece of meat, easy meat, get out of here. So there is a lot of using and you being used going on. The other the other guy in this movie was Guy Dolman, who also played along with Nigel Green. He was another guy that you did you weren't well, it's an important role actually. You yes, weren't sure if they were ally or foe. Yep. And he was another character actor if you've seen enough films from this time period on shows. He certainly stuck around for the next one. Yeah, but it was like, oh, he's a good guy. Oh, he's not a good guy. Oh, he is a good mm-hmm. guy. He's not a good guy. Same thing with Nigel Green. You know, who's There's a lot so of this going on in this movie. Yeah. Shocking to believe he ended his own life at a young age. Well, youngish. I had no idea, really. Yeah, right after Counter Strike. That sucks. 
Nayland Smith. Wow. Okay. All right. Nice. But anyway, so next, Alfie, which is a bizarre downbeat, and I put this in quotes, comedy about a lower class Cockney chauffeur on the make who gets with lonely housewives in parking garages and on the front seat of Mini Coopers, a car that would surely become very much associated with our star du jour. Now, those who've heard our slap and tickle show know that we enjoy the hell out of British exploitation. And personally, I just love Robin Asquith in the confession films, which on paper you think weren't all that far removed from what this one's about. But you'd be very wrong. Where both films rely on a more or less likable rapscallion of a lead, with Alfie being more confident and less put upon than Asquith, going so far as breaking the fourth wall and talking direct to camera on a regular basis, this is more of a kitchen sink drama with no real nudity, no real humor, and a whole lot of grotty East Ender-style drama and the depressing lives of the lower class. Best part? The big turning point of the film is some right-to-life thing. Really? Seriously? This one is more likely to appeal to fans of that show, Upstairs Downstairs, than ever would fans of Mary Millington, Carry On, or the likes of Asquith. And that says it all right there. The fact that it would inspire Burt Bacharach to pen one of his most depressing songs, most famously performed by your psychic friend, Dionne Warwick, should put the final nail on this particular coffin. The only real plus beyond some typically colorful 60s decor and the still fresh British Invasion Anglophile vibe is the sweet Sonny Rollins jazz score. Even Paul McCartney cast off and hammer starlet Jane Asher can't save this one. She more or less skips the makeup, and her attempt at playing Cockney is particularly miserable. So, yeah, I really did not like this film. Yeah, I never warmed to Alfie. I respected his... Uh, okay, a lot of people, you know, like this movie. You know, I, I, I didn't outright hate it as much, so, you know, like I wanted to burn every negative in, in existence. But I will add a, a QT moment with Michael Caine was nominated. This is his third picture as a, uh, well, it's his second picture as a lead for the Academy Award for Best Actor. So, that's pretty cool. It rarely happens then and now when somebody's out of the box and they get such a nomination. It would take a while before you actually won anything, but it was nice. That's a nice thing. You know, it was actually an important cultural touchstone of a way, kind of like a film that we'll talk about in even worse terms when we do our Charlotte Rampling show. You know which one I'm talking about there. <laughs> but, yeah. But I think after this, there's one or two bright spots, but for the next three or four years, he then slides into until the pretty much triple shot of the Italian job played dirty in Battle of Britain, even though he has a smaller role in that. He, his next couple of pictures are really odd. Yeah. <laughs> so, speaking of which, the wrong box. Oi. Yes. The British seem to have this thing for unfunny period piece black comedies around the mid to late 60s. Anything from the Assassination Bureau, which we mocked in our Oliver Reed show, to, well, not a period piece necessarily, the Love One, which we mocked in, I believe, our Roddy McDowell show. This is another one of those involving mistaken identities and that ghoulish de facto family trying to off each other to get an inheritance. There's even a weird side thing about a strangler who actually gets killed off before he can do anything, but winds up as a mistaken identity corpse for the remainder of the picture, which brings another one of these shitstorms to mind. Hitchcock's the trouble about Harry, though I gotta say my wife loves that one, so it must have some merit over the other ones mentioned. Uh, <laughs> this is the UK version of one of those abysmal 60s starfucker jobs, like If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, It's a Mad Mad World, or The Big Bus, with names like Ralph Richardson, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Peter Sellers, Thorley Walters, Valentine Dial, and the Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin's Leonard Rossiter, plus Hammer and Cole Horror starlet Diane Clare of Witchcraft, The Haunting, Plague of the Zombies, and the still unreleased The Vulture. Why doesn't somebody put that damn film out? In a bit part, but it goes nowhere from minute one. Kane's the love-struck young hero, quote-unquote, who's only interested in his questionable-looking cousin, Nanette Newman, who? Best forgotten to the annals of time and dust. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> What's your take? 
It's a very strange, very strange movie because this is like what black comedy is all about. It's black comedy. Oh, it's like it's not funny. It's dark. It's not a dramedy. And all these guys you mentioned, Peter Sellers, Cook and Moore, Martin Cook, whatever they were billed as, all these familiar faces in there. I think uh, even Benny Hill has a small part. Prior to him being super famous as Benny Hill, I just never warmed to this. I, I watched it on occasion, and it was on TMC the last time I saw it. So oh, let me take a little look at this. It's been 20 years, if not more, and I still couldn't get through it. <laughs> I mean, and I, no, I got through it previously. It's just, it's just an odd film, strange movie, much like Gambit. But by then, he's got some clout now. So uh, next up, he gets back to more familiar territory, Funeral in Berlin, which is mm. the second Harry Palmer film. It finds a far more Bondian take on the character. It's better lit, it's less grim, and with more savoir-faire to go with all that cockney sass. Kane's bagging cute birds right from the opening credits a la Bond. He makes cheap yeah. jokes about being outfitted with crazy spy gear a la M, which of course he isn't and doesn't. And the only real connection with the Ipcris file beyond the lead character is his boss. Well, the one that wasn't a double agent traitor anyway. There's more attempted humor and less familiar character actors this time around with Kane. Scary old bushy-eyebrowed Khrushchev lookalike Oscar Homolka, late of Hitchcock's yeah. murder. And Ava Renzi being the only names you'll recognize. It's all about the Cold War, specifically the Berlin Wall and defections to the West. It opens on the defection of a musician and soon puts him on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain to assist the suspicious defection of a Bolshevik colonel, which, despite its bombed-out buildings look like cars and green-suited commies, doesn't carry half so dark a vibe as Ipcris did somehow. There are even more double-crosses and odd twists that show everyone in the entire cast to be, at best, untrustworthy, at worst, dangerous, as a pleasant chat in his boss's pathetic attempt at a quaint English garden warns right off, everyone is dispensable. The first felt very cold, dark, quiet, and quite British. This one, by contrast, seems very 60s, even somewhat continental, which may have appealed to a larger audience at the time, but leaves the film feeling like a major step down from its predecessor. It's still dark, it's still a good spy film, but it's no Chris. For some reason, uh, I don't know where or when you saw this, but it's very difficult to track down this one. Yeah. At, at one time, it was uh, Warner Brothers, uh, one of those demand on DVDs, mean, me, meaning they burn them from you from the archive. Universal put it out, but briefly. It was on VHS, you know, back in the VHS days, but it's, it's really not on blue. No. And I'm surprised nobody's put these out on blue, at least of these three. Yeah. Of the Harry Potter pictures, this is, again, really hard to find. Go figure. There must be some rights issue somewhere with something. I'm not sure. I can tell you that they bounced the three movies among three different companies, so that may be the issue. It could be. I liked it. It's a good follow-up to the Ipcrest file, and it's more in keeping with the themes and kind of feeling and stuff that we got going on, as opposed to the fuck crazy <laughs> third one, which... You know, we'll get to that. Are we going to do Gambit? You want to drop that in? Yeah, I'll drop Gambit in because it's around this time period. This is this is like heist movie. We like heist movies. Everybody, we got to do the heist movie show. That's also on our back burner. So this one has Michael and Shirley MacLaine, who was like really hot around this time, and Herbert Lom and Roger C. Carmel. <laughs> you know. I don't know if oh, Roger C. Carmel, good lord. Uh, but <laughs> I don't know if Sharon McLean was ever hot, but she was certainly part of the rap pack. I thought she was hot. You know, it depends on, you know, you know. 
on on your thing of hotness. This has a strange cast, though. This is like John Abbott, who was in uh, one of those old vampire movies, and later on, before he died, spent the rest of his career as a villain or snarky type character in American TV shows like The Monsters. Monsters. Anyway, Shirley, who is always kind of strange looking in a way, plays an Eurasian <laughs> showgirl. And, you know, I could probably see with some mascara maybe going that way. So it's a heist picture. The heist kind of loses interest in some way. The film, for some reason, it's, they're trying to do – what was that Cary Grant Hitchcock picture? It takes a thing, right? Think, yeah. This is like the Brit, although it was made in America by Ronald Neem, a British director. And Maurice Jarre did the music, go figure. This is like the Brit version of It Takes a Thief with a little kind of twang. You know, it's like Michael's dressed in black, the black gloves, you know, and Shirley's. She's supposed to be an Eurasian showgirl named Nicole Chang. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, they, you know, for a girl that's like a little bit of a rump, they try to emphasize her ass a lot. And I don't know. There's a lot of things going on there. Um, it's a charming kind of... I wouldn't call it time waster, but it's it's pithy. You never know. She may have been Asian in one of her past lives. <laughs> oh, I, I now that's possible. I hear snow. Do you hear snow? No, oh, it's gone. Okay. Uh, so anyway, the, <laughs> next up, billion dollar brain. Oh, right. uh, Ken Russell. We did their show, Ken Russell in the 80s, which was loads of fun. Takes hold of the Harry Palmer series and skews it positively sideways. Think Funeral in Berlin was swinging 60s, swiping a bit too obvious from the bombing template? Capsule chairs, stunning naked French girls pretending to be Finnish, hot tubs, and a heretofore unseen degree of aesthetics, which goes from the pop art color scheme right down to the music, which at least in terms of the main theme you hear throughout the first half, is a wonderfully lush soundtrack. I forget who did this one. After that, it gets weird. Harry's now an out-of-work P.I. living off cornflakes, who tells off his old boss to MI6, only to find himself the mule in a weird trafficking operation, which he accepts the role of via robocall. Suddenly, the series goes from claustrophobic and darkly grotty to wonderfully shot outdoor cinematography, decadent erotic art, tasteful furnishings. Where the hell did all this come from? Tagging a lot of weird comedy about Russians. It's almost as bad as Michael Reeves' The She-Beast. Weird Nazi pastiches for no reason whatsoever. And more travelogue footage than usual, and you've got a film that's recognizably using the same basic characters and setup, but working from a different script entirely, so to speak. A fear obsession with computers. Lunatic cowboy Americans have to start a nuclear war with the commies. It's like Russell started the film totally messing with the Palmer series, but still appending more or less to a Bond-like spy film template, and then he just completely flips out and starts flashing everyone in the middle of a public square, giving all concern to two fingers up double bird for the remainder of the running time. But back to the good half of the film. Beyond the visual flourishes and nods to eroticism and decadence, the one big thing this film has going for it is on the distaff end. I personally have never found Catherine Deneuve particularly appealing, even in Binwell's Spell de Jour. She just comes off pissed off and icy cold, but her older sister, Francois Dorliac, we talked about this before, mm. damn, mm. positively stunning, and with that accent providing the icing on the cake, mm. if I was ever going to go for a blonde again, between her, Julie Delpy, and Bordeaux, it'd certainly be a French blonde, so that's all i got to say about that. <laughs> well, Francois Dorliac was also in that Great, David Niven, where the spies yeah. are. It's a great little. It was David Niven's Euro spy movie, and she was the hottie in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know what to say about this one. You know, we 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 mentioned it in the Ken Russell show, and it's just it's lesser oh, by far. than the other two Harry Palmers that came before. Yeah, by far. 
And it, well, because it's Ken Russell, it's all over the place and strange and it's weird. And I would say I would love to see the version of this they didn't release. I'm sure he probably delivered a cut and they probably said, what is You've this? got the eroticism, the homoeroticism, the high art stuff, the visual flair, the Nazi obsessions. I mean, I'm sure he left out and somewhere on the cutting room floor they've got some kind of vision of somebody being crucified. And God knows. <laughs> it's things a fucking mess as it is. Yeah, it's it's a mess. Are you going to Harry Sundown? Okay. This is one of those downbeat Otto Preminger pictures from 67. So right around the time of Funeral in Berlin. Otto Preminger directed Horton Foote, of all people, wrote the screenplay. And this is like one for the ages. You know, our cast here has like Michael Caine's a star. Jane Fonda, John Philip Law, Diane Carroll, Robert Hooks from Trouble Man, Faith Dunaway, Burgess Meredith, George Kennedy, Frank Converse, Irving Meredith, Frank Congress. And it just gets bizarre. Jim Backus is in this. <laughs> With Robert Hooks. <laughs> yes. It's, this is like, this is like, wow. um, in the mid to late 40s, white owners of, like, farms and plantations are dealing with the Ku Klux Klan and the black sharecroppers, and, of course, they're banging the hot black teacher. This is like a movie that should not have been made. Um, I can hear this. <laughs> it was, it did well financially, I could tell you that. And to add to that, it's very rarely seen nowadays for, for a pe- peculiar reason, but unlike the much later by a decade or so Mandingo Drum and Quadrant. Big Black Guy with a Dick movies <laughs> uh, this this is worse because this is you know those things were taken tongue in cheek well something else in cheek mm-hmm. as opposed to this kind of thing is played straight and you can't play these things straight and sit through them with a straight face I'm sorry so yeah and it's Preminger who doesn't know how to do anything with <laughs> With the announce of no, let me rephrase that. A modicum of taste. Come on, look at him as Mr. Freeze on Batman. <laughs> well, no, no. It's like I've interviewed it just by by coincidence. I, I interviewed a few actors who worked with Premature. Nobody has anything good to say about this guy. The other thing I'll squeeze in really quick is Woman Times Seven by Victoria De Sica. It's an anthology picture about sexy women and things that happen. It's got Peter Sellers, Lex Barker, Anita Ekberg, Victoria Gassman, Adrian Corey from The Vampire. Lewis and it's got Shirley MacLaine and Michael Caine reunited again. Shirley plays like 19 roles in this thing mm-hmm. as like, I don't know, the woman, each episode is like a woman and a guy. Like the woman who just like the thing. It's it's a very Italian movie. I never liked it. It's, it's I hate to say sometimes things like this are dreadfully a bore. You know? Yeah. Go to you. All right. So next up, we got a really strange one. The Magus. Weird, elusive film about Anthony Quinn running a Greek island. And the more Teacher Kane gets involved with the guy and tries to figure out who he really is, there's hints he may be an ex-Nazi or something, the more strange shit happens to him. Godard's inexplicably favorite girl, Anna Karina, and of all people, Candace Bergen, are in this one as well for no apparent reason. Karina smashes feta cheese in his face, strips for a swim but leaves her giant panties on, and then brags about how many guys she slept with in a single year. Bergen pretends to be a ghost and may or may not be a schizo who thinks it's 1915 or a hired actress on a gig, and Quinn tries to be all mysterious. Is he a shrink? Is he a wizard? A producer? And what the hell's with all these people running around dressed like Pan, Diana, and the Minotaur that nobody sees but Kane? Kane himself bitched about the film, saying for the record that nobody in the cast even understood what the hell it was about. It's a really strange head film, but it's worth at least one watch, and I actually got a kick out of it just because it was so screwed up, but it's a really strange film. Do you see this one? 
I, I did see this one. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> John Fowles wrote this thing, and he had a minor part. Uh, who's John Fowles? Well, he's the author, I believe, of The French Lieutenant's Women. The Collector. He wrote that screenplay. This guy wrote screenplays as well as writing uh, short stories and novels. So he's kind of like this deep British headcase who write really weird things. I said this movie, I have to agree 100% with you. It's very strange. I don't know where it falls and things. But, you know, it's ahead <laughs> of its time. Yes. We can say that. Definitely. If you've seen something like Moonchild, you get the idea. But less occultic. So, anyway, next up he does The Italian Job. I love this. Uh, Wow, okay. So get ready for this. Unfunny, annoying, quote, comedy heist film where Lothario and Master Thief Kane is a henpecked boyfriend to a toothy, I forgot who even the hell it was, with a whole lot of quirky British contacts who are too concerned with the state of the economy to do a job domestically. A whole lot of driving around in circles around Rome ensues as the audience tries to prop sagging eyelids open with toothpicks. It's so boring and pointless. For some strange reason, this one popularized the Mini Cooper, but Kane and some travelogue footage aside, it boggles the mind as to why. Total stinker if you want a real heist film, try Grand Slam. If you want a real car film, try anything from Bullet to Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, or even Vanishing Point. Hell, even Tulane Blacktop. Just by all means, avoid this G-rated wannabe comedic piece of crap. So, obviously, you have a very different opinion, so go ahead. I have a very different opinion of this film. I always <laughs> enjoyed this movie. It's a fun picture. Uh, no coward. It's fun seeing him in prison being the uh, overlord of the prison. You know, like a, a famous mafia don. You know, and that's who no coward's supposed to be, the British equivalent of a mafia don in prison. The kingpin from uh, Daredevil? No, 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 no. Like, I'm talking about, like, the Balachi papers, that kind of thing. Okay. You know, who was uh, Lino Ventura in that movie. No, it's, 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 it's funny. It's a ha-ha funny. It's, it's... I liked, I liked the heist part of it. I liked that they got these mini groupers. Tony Beckley, Benny Hill, who I name-checked earlier, is in this. And I occasionally, he has a, a really weird mini monologue because Benny Hill's character likes swimming with fat asses. <laughs> and, it, and it gets him in trouble because he also likes BBWs. And, like, he's driving, he's driving, he's supposed to do something, and then he sees, like, these big fat women hanging curtains or something or laundry in the yard. And he totally forgets about what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> and it's like, where did that come from? There's odd little quirky things. Things happen that make Michael Caine's ex-con Charlie Croker get involved in this. this. Sounds like it's easy to pull off, but I, actually it's not. It's like one of those oddball heists. There are oddball little tinges to his character that kind of make him on the edge of being unfriendly. I liked it. I actually thought... Jason Statham did a decent job in the remake. I don't know if you ever saw that. Uh, it's actually one of Jason Statham's better films. Could you, you not? Know, funny th the funny thing about this is Kane actually titled his autobiography after one of his lines in it. Just blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like this. You didn't. So, you know, it's 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 not heavy. Like, play no. dirty. But right, let's go on. All right, so uh, next up is Get Carter. Mike Hodges, who'd later go on to Flash Gordon in an uncredited co-directing on Damien Omen 2, gets a big break when MGM and Michael Caine himself finance and co-produce his first feature, and it's a doozy. The plot is paper thin. Caine is a gangster who's been abroad bowling Rod Stewart X and the Wicker Man's naked dancing witch, Britt Eklund. He hears his brother die, quote, accidentally, and returns home to find out what really happened and take revenge on those responsible. There's some dark twists and turns along the way. Caine's young niece, who may or may not actually 
Lady, his daughter, shows up in a non-consensual porn film and suddenly changes from a Shaw Brothers kung fu film style, You killed my brother! Now! I'll get my revenge, shtick to George C. Scott and Hardcore. And you get your typical 70s bleak ending where after a whole lot of vengeance going down, or hero or anti-hero as the case may be, get shot in the head, roll credits. But it's quiet. shows just how much more powerful film is or can be without a score, or at least a very minimal understated one. Once again, fuck you, John Williams. An electric lead and some good location work and cinematography. Very good film, particularly of its type, though hardly as some period of retroactively stated, the greatest British film of all time. No, not by a long shot, but it's a very good film. It's a very good film. This is actually the third in a triptych of Michael Caine depressing pictures. The first one I would have to say is Play Dirty, a war film, World War II picture he did for Andre de Toth, who did House of Wax, you know, him, the one-eyed director. He did that Vincent Price 3D picture. Uh, this is like Nigel Davenport, Nigel Green. This is like heavy shit. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, you got like... British soldiers facing inevitable odds, and uh, some of them are out to make make a make a financial killing during during their their thing here. You know, guarding this fuel depot. It was in Africa or South Africa. I always remember this film as being like, oh, this is depressing. Nearly all the leads die at the end. That's why I brought this up because you know it is that. And Too Late, The Hero, which is a Robert Aldrich picture of the Dirty Dozen fame and many, many other pictures. Another familiar territory here. We have international cast, Kane, Cliff Robertson, Henry Fonda, Takakura, Ken, Denham Elliott, Ian Bannon. Another World War II picture about, uh, this time, with the soldiers against uh, the Japanese. It's another movie, and because it's Aldrich, it's a little bit better. It's a little tightly wound, more tightly wound than the other thing. Harry... Andrews and Ronald Frazier, I remember being standouts in this. But it's another film with a nihilistic ending. You know, like, nearly the entire cast is dead. And you kind of walk out feeling like, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Get Carter, which, yo, you just so well mentioned, is like another one. You know, and after a while, I'm sure audiences are probably thinking, you want to see that Michael Caine movie? I don't know, is he dying in this one too? (laughs) You know, know, we're getting to this odd thing here but the turn is about to happen when he starts doing a little odder films but more odder than dying in every movie he's in yes <laughs> and i just gotta say i appreciate your delivering ken takakura's name japanese style with the last name first <laughs> well it's supposed to be i know but people over here don't always understand that so anyway uh, i appreciate it <laughs> welcome son okay. so next up sleuth it's an overlong film about a mystery writer who lives in a weird-ass english castle Filled with clown puppets and shit, but with an awesome garden maze. He invites over <laughs> his weird wife's hairdresser. Where clown puppets and shit? I love that. <laughs> okay. uh, sorry. He invites over his wife's hairdresser, who's not gay. He's one of those rare Warren Beatty and shampoo straight ones. Originally, they give him crap about screwing his wife, but then he switches gears and proposes they go Dutch on a jewel robbery. Say what? There's a lot of intimations about their developing a gay relationship. Going around playing dress-up and getting awfully chummy up there in his lonely, isolated mansion. But then they start trying to kill each other, or at least pretend they are, to freak the other guy out. And then in the third act, the local constable shows up, and it turns into a real-life murder mystery, or does it? The whole thing's just some big weird game between the two, with some heavy lavender screen overtones. But despite a lot of love for it at the time, and even through to today, the remake of this, for all its flaws, was a lot darker. And while I don't know that it quite works either, that one is a lot better than this goofy or ham fest where Olivia is chewing up every last bit of the scenery for two hours and change. 
I'm here. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I, I, I didn't realize how much fun was going to be in this show, so I had to do a refill. Uh, <laughs> I was like, this show is so much fun. It's time for a refill. Did you need to rehear what I said about Sleuth? Are you good? I did, no. I had it on the audio okay. while I was getting refill. It's a very strange movie. Um, yeah, all right. <laughs> and... and I have to say, it's sort of on stage, and it's never been done as well as it's been done in the movie. Probably because the, the tight camera work. You know, Mankiewicz, he's like a guy who really did dramas, you know, and, and did some stage stuff, so he really know how to frame this movie. I wasn't the thrilled about it. Yeah. It was readapted into, of all things, Death Trap yes. years later. And the funny thing is, I like Death Trap much better than Sue. Thank you, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> and, and 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 I actually believe the there, there are some and so there are some homoerotic overtones. I actually saw this from Patrick McNee, by the way, on stage. Sleuth. But there are some homoerotic tones, which kind of like spoken to, let's say, to coin your phrase, but not as outright as in Death Trap, right. which they're more out there. This is a cool movie. I, I recommend people watching it if you've never seen it. This would be a great double bill for Sleuth and Death Trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might say, oh, it's the same movie, but it's not really. No, it's, not really. It's, it's close. It's, it's, a re, it's, it's close, but it's a nice reworking. I noticed we did skip Pulp, which is another Mike Hodges movie of Flash. Ah. Um, it's just one of those weirdies. I, I'm surprised you skipped this one because it has noir favorite Elizabeth Scott really? uh, as, yeah, the female lead. And uh, Mickey Rooney and Lionel Stander. And it, it's sexually charged. Uh, very hard to get. I think it's one of those, currently one of those wonderful burning for you things. That's probably why I skipped it because I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Michael Caine plays Mickey King. I love that name. No, I don't. <laughs> he's, he's a writer of, yeah, that could be my next name for podcast shows. And Mickey King. Hello there, guys. Uh, a writer of cheap paperback detective novels with a sexual twist. You'd be Luke Power. <laughs> could be. Could be. Anyway, he's hired to ghostwrite the autobiography of Mr. Celebrity and former mafia kingpin, fill in the words, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> Who, who, surprisingly, surprisingly does really well with this. He plays this dick bastard. You could believe him as a mobster guy. I kid you not. And Elizabeth Scott, so we're talking 72. She did those, remember she did those hammer things? Mm -hmm. It was like maybe 62, 64, around there, 58, 59. She still comes across as like, hmm, you know? (laughs) And Nofi. Yeah. Lionel Standard does his typical guy on the outside, you know, with that Lionel Standard voice. Neither one of us can do it without blowing yeah, our yeah, hearts. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the rest of the cast is maybe familiar, but not so much, except for two people. One of them is the perennial drunk, Dennis Price. <laughs> and the other is Al Latiri, who we all remember from uh, Peckinpah's The Getaway. And uh, he has a few other things, but he's most famous for that as Steve McQueen's uh, hired hand psychopath who... Wounds up talking, uh, talking Sally Struthers into, <laughs> into you know, rather easily. And the guy she was supposed to be married to in the getaway was the guy from the Andy Griffith show. Remember? Oh, <laughs> Floyd the Barber. <laughs> you know, I, I I rewatched a lot of Peckinpah lately, and I find out wow, he really sucks. <laughs> but his movies are so bizarre. Maybe you could look like him for a bizarre reason, but the cast is so strange. 
The only one of, and I don't even think it was his film, but like his films that I liked was uh, Straw Dogs. That's him. Yeah, it was yeah. him, yeah. I did like that one. Really rough, hard to sit through, but... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it for that reason. I'm like, I don't, I don't need to like this. <laughs> but anyway, uh, wow, that was a digression. I, Pulp is weird. It's strange. Uh, I just recently have just popped up again in, in uh, people talking about it because it showed up again as a revamped Warner DVD or maybe a uh, video on demand or maybe it was a Shout Factory. Limited edition. We only print 50 of these because after a while, it'll be $3,000. Uh, <laughs> Which is something we always bitch about, folks, because like my co-host here, and I'm sure a lot of you out there, you know, some of us have a day job. And I don't know, lately, Blu-rays and DVDs of... They're getting to be not worth it. I'm not buying them anymore. Yeah, it's like, uh, thank you so much for getting going to the trouble on striking a, a copy from the camera inter-negative or the inter-positive and getting decent people to do the uh, audio commentary which I got careless unless it's not Troy Howarth and then so <laughs> you know, and some, and some cool extras but you know 40 bucks Thirty dollars? Well, how about that fucking Maras set that's like supposedly retail for a hundred bucks and they're going to like seventy? Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like, and then if you and think, I only need two films on it, there's three films. Like, come on. And, you, and if you're budgeting and say, okay, maybe I can afford that next check. Ha, we only paid fifty hundred. They're gone. <laughs> um, so what was the purpose of doing exactly. this? Exactly. It's, it's this FOMO shit. It's like your pal Code Red is always pulling now. Oh, I get oh yeah, you know, we're going to put it up and we're going to pull it down. And I don't have any more copies, but I really have a thousand in my closet. And fuck you, all right? You know, I'm done with that game. You know, FOMO your ass. Well, no, <laughs> Arrow's been doing it too lately, too. Yes, they have. And, 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 and it's like a couple of people have been doing this. A Severin. Severin too. All the colors of the dark. You know, they put out this yep. great box set. I said, I think I'll put some money on the side for this, and then they were gone. I'm like, what the fuck? You got to put out something people can fucking afford before you worry about all this, like, you know, dicey little extra. If you want to do that as a special, like, oh, look, here's the deluxe box. Or, you know, some people do that with music, where they give you the remaster, then they give you the remaster with a second disc of live stuff and bonus or whatever, yeah. and then they give you the deluxe set with a whole bunch of shit. Fleetwood Max been doing that lately. All right, well, I'm never going to get those deluxe sets, but I may get the remaster. Yeah, yeah. I may even go for the two-disc. So why don't you do something like that? You know, save the bullshit for some rich asshole friend of yours and let everybody else get in on the one that's going for, you know, normal retail. Well, the thing I don't understand is also these lenticular sleeves. Now, I was on eBay mm-hmm. looking recently. Oh, this is our last digression. we back to the show, Fox. I was on eBay recently looking for a couple of things I, that kind of slipped past me. And I was like, we have a sleeve only. I'm like... Why would I buy the sleeve? <laughs> well, you know my profile picture lately when I was using the supposedly rare Captain Marvel figure there, right? Which is just because I like the girl in the green costume. I hate that other costume they're using. So I actually found it. And I was like, oh, great. You know, it's there. It's It wasn't cheap, but it was like normal price for one of these things nowadays. And it turns out that people were selling this shit on eBay, not only for a big markup because they're like, oh, look, it's exclusive to this one store or whatever. But on top of that... They were selling just like, oh, here's the extras, here's some heads, or here's the box, or, what are you, crazy? What do I need that for? Was, you know, give me the whole fucking thing or don't give me nothing. People must be buying this stuff, that's all I can tell you. There's always uh, some uh, lunatic out there. Yeah, comes with the box. <laughs> uh, wait a minute, you mean I'm buying something new, it doesn't come in a box? Yeah, or sometimes <laughs> you go on sites, like some of these sites that sell like rare old CDs or whatever, and, oh yeah, I just right. got the disc, no no case. I'm like, what do I want that for? You might as well charge me a buck. <laughs> you know, fuck you. Well, I see that a lot too. I see that a lot with CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah. 
disc only, twenty nine ninety five. Uh, where's where's the uh, where's the case? Back when GameStop <laughs> and Funko Land were pulling that for video game people, it's like okay, you get these boxes of Nintendo and stuff, and they got the box, they got the manual, got some extra stuff in there, and then they got the cartridges. Oh, we'll just sell you the cartridges. Well, where's the rest of this? Oh, we throw those out. You throw them out seriously? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know who's even buying because stuff. they're rentals because they get they get so many copies. Yeah, That's unbelievable. Why. So anyway. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next picture. So, next picture, I still like Luke Power as your new gay porn pseudo or whatever. Oh. Uh, but the, <laughs> mm. I got to think about it. So next up, The Black Windmill. A strangely lifeless Don Siegel-directed British attempt to recapture the vibe of the first two Harry Palmer films, but despite a cast full of interesting stars, Donald Pleasance, John Vernon, Delphine Syrig of Daughters of Darkness and Last Year at Marienbad, Catherine Schell, even John Rhys-Davies in a bit part, it doesn't capture the first half of Russell's weird showstopper of a series from now, even, much less those first two. Kane's an MI6 man on a tale of some IRA arms smugglers when his whiniest son gets kidnapped and held for ransom. His superiors find out and start pushing the frankly bizarre idea that he staged the kidnapping himself, setting him against all sides as he tries to find out who did it, get his son back, and clear his name. In the end, there's a twist much like that in the Epic's file, but Kane and the better part of the cast just seem bored. The lighting is flat and overly bright. The whole thing is kind of snoozeworthy and work a day. It almost feels like a BBC television movie. And his wife? She's so frightening and butch. I was seriously wondering if it was a tranny. Excuse me, ma'am. I mean, sir. Uh, it's it terrible? No. But it makes glacially slow of interesting films like The Internecine Project seem positively exciting by comparison. And Atmosphere Reveal? You know, there's really none to be had. It's a journeyman effort at best. Uh, somebody pointed out on the on the net recently, his overview, that... And I, I, I tend to agree that it's almost as if every actor in this film is approaching the, his role and his role in the film differently than everybody else. <laughs> it's like they're not in the same mood, y'all. So everybody in this cast is is just acting like they're in a different film. And <laughs> yo, know, John Vernon, everybody knows John Vernon. Oh yeah. Donald Pleasance, who apparently it looks like some scenes he he was alone, like. You know, just like shoot your role and add it in later. Clive Rebel, pick up Clive Rebel, is really good. Janet Sussman's always been icy cold. I think that's the one you were referring to as as uh, Michael Caine's wife. Icy cold woman. Never really liked it. I think I, I think I had hoped this would be personally a cooler version of Get Carter, but it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping for another Icarus file or something along those lines, and nope, not really. Well, they had great posters. You have to remember that. The, oh, yeah. The, tr the trailer for the Black Windmill and the posters for this movie made it stand out. And like, hey, this is cool. Don Siegel did this. All right, I'm going to pay attention. And then when you saw it, it was huge letdown. Yeah. So next up is a much better picture, thankfully. The Marseille Contract, better known in these days of Blu-ray as The Destructors. It's a likable, if typically dark, British crime film where Anthony Quinn is a CIA type who's been on the trail of a French drug lord, the oh-so-Parisian James Mason, for years and never managing to catch the guy. When the French government starts putting pressure on him to lay off such a, quote, prominent citizen, he gets the ingenious idea to hire a hitman and take Mason out, who turns out to be his old war buddy and charmer Kane. 
Interestingly, both Kane and Grumpy Old Man Quinn have really hot girlfriends, which doesn't hurt the watchability factor here. There's a car race between Kane and Mason's daughter, a lot of scenic, well-shot location cinematography, and a really dark ending where the whole plan goes to shit and Quinn winds up taking matters very publicly into his own hands. Not a great film, but it works pretty damn well for me. I did like this one a lot. Yeah, it was the Destructors or the Marcel contract. It's one of those movies that actually fell behind the cracks, for, uh, balls behind the cracks for a lot of people. They may think it's a lesser film, but I really, I agree with you, and I think more people should check it out. It's it's not what you think it is. It's not a, uh, like we did all those Italian crime movies. Remember we did that, that show? Yep, the Police Tessies. shows? Yep. Police Tessies. It's, it's not like that. And, and in some ways, it may lead you on to think it might become something like that, but it's a little bit different. It's actually quite, quite well done. Mm-hmm. Are you going to mention Will Be Conspiracy? Yeah, this was, okay, so this one in 1975, highly promoted. Ralph Nelson of Soldier Blue fame, you know, like, will gang rape and depress the Candace Bergen and the rest of the cast of people, I, I, which I really hated that movie. He, Ralph Nelson, directed this picture about the, <sighs> this whole apartheid era yeah. thing going on. And Sidney Poitier, or Poitier, you know, it depends, <laughs> plays Shaq Tawala. Who <laughs> Shaq Tawala. <laughs> Shaq <All right>. Kazam. <laughs> now up against uh, Rodney Dangerfield, the Shaq Tawala in the ring. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he's he's freed by. Uh, forget about it. It's just calm. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like uh, what was that movie with Tony Curtis and Harry Belafonte? Oh, or was okay. it Tony? Was it Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier? The the you know the white guy and the and the, and the black dude just uh, the final ones. Yes, 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 yes. That is. So now we have Sidney and Michael Caine, and uh, they're on the run, and you know they're kind of together. And but this also involves diamonds and um, Michael Williamson's in this. Patrick Allen, who I remember from a couple of uh, B movies. It's not a really great movie, but it was very popular for a time. Um, I can't remember. Oh, Rucker Howard's in this thing, of all people, in the smaller part. I can't remember if... I remember I saw this in a theater. No snickering, 1975. But I I can't remember if I enjoyed it at the time or not. (laughs) It certainly has not had, in retrospect, a uh, welcome uh, post-review. You know, I haven't seen a lot of people saying, hey, you know, one of those movies, you know, because a lot of people sometimes do like one of those movies we don't go back to, one of those movies we missed, or one of those films we finally remember but we don't discuss anymore is one of them is not the Will Be Conspiracy. Uh, Sidney Poitier is a great actor uh, sure. for the most part. He did shit. Everybody does shit. Michael Caine did shit. We're going to get to the shit. Yeah. But, <laughs> but this is not one of them, but this is trying to, a movie I respect for trying to deal with something like apartheid, which in a few more years, it would have been even brought, well, 10 years more, would have been brought out much more to the forefront with Sun City and, and uh, the, the efforts of Stevie Van Zandt and a mm-hmm. bunch of people. But for now, as an action film, it was like, it was okay. 
So uh, next up, I believe, is The Man Who Would Be King. We spoke to this during our Connery show, though it really wasn't Connery who carried this film. It was really Kane. You know, it's got its issues, but it's uh, likable enough for what it is. Do you need to say anything further on it, or we just move on? No, we, those of you who listened to our Sean Connery show recently, please do. It was a very fun show to do. I think it precedes our Schwarzenegger show. Yes. It's it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend that. Not only because we recorded it, but we had a lot of fun talking about it. Even though at the outset I said we discovered there were some Connery films we thought we had liked more than we did in retrospect. Yeah. It's a really good show. And Michael Caine steals this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Michael Caine will steal a lot of movies coming <laughs> up, including Harry and Walter Go to New York. <laughs> Is that the next one? Yeah, did you see that? No, I did not. <laughs> okay, so we're going we're gonna to discuss the oddest triumvirate strange fucking movie. Mark Rydell, who did stuff like, you're with me, folks. The Fox, The Reavers, The Cowboys, Cinderella, Liberty, The Rose, Bette Midler, mm-hmm. For the Boys. I know, strange movies, right? I know, it's probably some coke-sniffing motherfucker <laughs> back in the 70s. So he does this movie co-written by John Byram, who I believe directed the uh, Bill Murray picture about uh, the remake of Razor's Edge. Yes, that John Byron, mm-hmm. which we all remember the racist edge. And so it's like Michael, James Kahn, and Elliot Gould, or Harry or Walter, okay, they're struggling villains. Who? These guys? <laughs> they're sent to jail for robbing something, but they meet a charming bank robber, Michael Kane. So then become a trio. And then who's the love interest in this? The late Diane Keaton. I was like, okay, you should. <laughs> I can never understand any of that. Yeah. Burt Young is in this. Leslie Ann Warren. Okay, maybe. Charles Durning, who's still alive and kicking, I believe. It's an interesting, weird movie. Why would you make this kind of thing? First of all, it's set in the 1890s in New York. Was there ever an interest in this? I think it's one of the failures of the Scorsese gangs in New York, too. It's mm-hmm. like, it's hard to do this kind of thing. And so they become songmen. So if you ever wanted to see Jimmy Kahn and Elliot Gold, <laughs> Elliot Gould, sorry, as songmen, it's kind of fun. You know, throw Michael Caine into the mix. It's like the... Uh, well, didn't Gould do that with Roger Moore in Escape to Athena? Remember they put on the Broadway show? They did do that. Yeah. But it seemed more bizarre here. <laughs> it's... I, I don't hate this one. It's very, it's, in a way, don't shoot me. It's it's charming on one level, but look hard and ye will not find a copy of this thing. <laughs> Unless TMC might show it. God knows. Somebody over there like deep digs deep into the vault sometimes. Yeah. Just when you think you won't see something, it's like, oh my God, that's on. It's at 3.40 a.m. You know, set your DVRs. This is one of those strange movies I recommend people to see, only to know they're not on drugs. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I recall the period comedy, but I wanted to make mention of the film because in some ways in some ways, it's more earnest and charming than The Eagles Landed. Yeah, The Eagle Has Landed is a better-than-usual war film, despite being another starfucker job, hailing from the mid to late 70s, and with our hero not even appearing till half an hour into the film, then vanishing for another 45 minutes, the bulk of which is devoted to Donald Sutherland's jaunty Irish IRA man, falling for the ubiquitous and off-naked in most of her films. Not here, though. 70s bit of crumpet Jenny Agutter, about a Nazi plot to sneak into England, capture and impersonate the locals near one of the Churchill's plant stops, and kidnap the PM. It's a big cast, includes Kane, Donald Sutherland, 
Sutherland, Donald Pleasance, Jenny Agutter, Judy Geeson, Gene Marsh, Robert Duvall, Larry Hagman, and Ferdie Maine. But, you know, much better than you'd expect. It's not a top-tier war film, but I definitely did enjoy it. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I have to agree with you. It's... it's For years, I avoided this movie, and then uh, I saw it on Prime. Amazon Prime. It's, yeah, it's much better than I thought it was. I'm not sure I like the vibe of it. I think the timing's way off. It's John Sturgis, who directed fucking classic films. We don't need to name check him. Look up John Sturgis' name, you know. It's an odd film. And yeah, a lot of the cast members don't show up for like a quarter of an hour, 45 minutes. You know, I was like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> Great cast. Impressive cast, I actually would say. Impressive cast. And, you know, Jenny Agutter, for those who like him, thin with like long, stringy nipples. Anyway, I didn't say that. I love Jenny Agutter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, you can't edit that out. Or as but, they said no. on Coupling, try to find a movie where Jenny Agutter or Helen Mirren is not naked. <laughs> it's like a drinking game. Because <laughs> mm. they're always fucking naked in these films. But not here, so. <laughs> mm. This this fodder for a show. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to mention The Bridge Too Far, which I believe we just mentioned? Recently. Yeah, well, we was going to say, we spoke to it during our Connery show. Too many cast members, too long a film, but still not enough time in it for everyone, or for anyone, to stand out, really. Right. Uh, which is amazing. How can you do a film that's pushing three hours, and nobody stands out in it? Really? Because... Because well, as we mentioned, it's like every major actor in Hollywood is in this fucking movie. In 1977, you know, Redford, Khan, Paul Newman, I think, uh, uh, Kane, uh, Connery, Dirk Bogart. I mean, like everybody was anybody. (laughs) I I wanted to say kudos to Richard Attenborough for for pulling us off, but it's (laughs) it's a mess. Pull it off, yeah. No, I think well, it didn't quite, but there's probably a longer version, but we don't want to see it. I think what I said that time was uh, there's a reason that you only hear of David Attenborough, <laughs> his brother, wherever he is, that does all the nature specials these days. Uh, oh, Planet Earth. He does Planet <laughs> Earth. Right? Yeah. So anyway, next up, here comes a paycheck job, and this is the first of a couple, uh, not necessarily in a row, but The Swarm. By most accounts, Kane's most hated of his own films. The man comes in front and center amidst the usual 70s starfucker cast and includes folks as far afield as Michael Caine, Catherine Ross, Richard Widmark, Richard Chamberlain, Olivia de Havilland, Lee Grant, Jose Ferrer, Patty Duke, Slim Pickens, Fred McMurray, Henry Fonda, and Cameron Mitchell. How the fuck did you get all those people together? 50s and 60s sitcom people, film noir people, people that are hot just now off the theatrical circuit and becoming huge around this time. What the hell? <laughs> TV people, I mean, whatever. So anyway, it's one of those big killer bee films that include everything from the Deadly Bees to the Bees with John Saxon, the Savage Bees, Invasion of the Bee Girls with Mariana Hill, but definitely the one with the biggest cast and budget. Kane is the doctor, sort of like David Warner in Nightwing, who's been tracking these bee swarms around and just barges his way into a government complex to serve as, quote, on-site expert, much to the dismay of military man Richard Widmark. The rest of his typical disaster film logic with fading stars of film and television pulled away from barstool and rocking chair to drop a few quick minutes of characterization before the monsters win. Some really funny scenes like some brat kid in a suple haircut driving a Ford down the main street of town will give you some extra laughs, but there's no denying it, like pretty much every other disaster film you name, is a real stinker. I think this is one of the first Michael Caine movies in memory where he's he knows it's a paycheck, he looks at the cast, he sees a script, and he goes, I'm going to fuck with this. So he goes in, and he's bellowing most of his lines for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, like, he'll show up in a drawing room sequence. Well, I told you 
that, you know, and, and it's like you have to start lowering the volume. You know, even there's a love scene with him and I don't know, Chick Dujour, Catherine Ross, you know, from Butch Cassidy's. Whatever happened to her? I don't know. I love you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like everything, every other line was bellowed. Yep. And, and, and yes, folks, those of you who nev- never went to school, just, you know, look up Bellow. But anyway, um, he, he is. He's, he's, he's just like, he's like, all right, for those of you who don't know, it was like getting a fucking bullhorn. You know what those are, right? And you put it to your mouth, and you're like, hello, you in the third row. Like Rudy Valley. <laughs> like Rudy Valley, or if you're in a ball game, uh, if anybody at all is interested in sports anymore with the ever, ever expensive people and the over the PA system, the couple in seat 14 are making out. Put the camera on them right now. So, yeah, that kind of thing. He's just blasting out his lines as the first movie. You know, the hey, Michael Caine, which we've been talking about in the shows uh, at this point, and mentioned other shows. He has a very distinct delivery. It comes from his upbringing. It comes from you know the way he he, he came through the ranks and where he grew up. But I think he he picked up at some point that he he's aware of this accent of his own. So when he's aware he's in shit, he doesn't really want to give the extra two cents. <laughs> so he's like bellowing out his lines. Other people have done that, and, and, but. This is one of the first, you know, I, I don't hate Swarm. I, I saw Swarm in the theater, and I was like, eh, it's funnish. Yeah, it's watching me bad. I mean, like I said, that, the scene with the kid driving the car is hilarious. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that, man. I, but I remember just a lot super, superimposed. You know, guys, okay, what are we talking about? How about people flailing about? Now, flailing, look that up, too. The flailing about, moving their hands and twisting the upper portion of the body, but superimposed upon them are bees flying around <laughs> as if they're getting bit. And these people will fall down the ground, still flailing about. Hey, I, I'm not knocking at you for our listeners, but some people are like, what do you mean flailing about? I have to... But <laughs> this... this It's too 90s for me. Uh, no, really, but seriously. If we ever did a podcast show, we would win the Rondo Hatton Award because <laughs> we would... Uh, we are a so podcast I, show. What are you talking about? Huh? <laughs> we are a podcast show. No, I mean, if we ever did a podcast show that was nominated for a Rondo Hat. Oh, there award, you go. This would be it, yeah. This would be it. That's right, man. <laughs> See, if it wasn't for this guy, I'd be lost. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Swarm, yeah. But then it's a nice little kind of earthy thing that kind of fell behind the cracks. I'm not sure if you want to cover that next. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if this one you meant. California Sweet dated an unfunny Neil Simon job set up mercilessly in pastiche by SCTV. Only their version remembers to bring the laughs. Everyone's favorite Mentors fan and master of the Mickey Finn, Bill Cosby, is on vacation with Richard Pryor and some women. But they bicker so much, you know what's really going on there. (laughs) Yeah, they're having a relationship themselves. Michael Caine in full-on bland hand mode. Alan Alda, a particularly Butch Jane Fonda. Nice grandma do there, lady. And Walter Matthau also appear. And it's supposed to be, oh, look at all the funny events that happen at this rich asshole hotel in Beverly Hills. Only it's not funny in the least. It's more of a, quote, mature relationship dramedy. And everyone's fucking annoying. But the DVD ad copy is sure to inform us that it's, quote, great fun, exclamation point. As Adam Ant once wrote, isn't it sad to be told you're having fun? What's your take? <laughs> 
Well, this, this I saw this on uh, I saw this on Broadway around about a year before this, or maybe the same year. Or I forgot what the star cast was at that time. Might have had some of these people. And when I saw the movie, wow, look who's in this fucking cast. You know, it was kind of like, yeah. But has had a lot of potential. This is still Richard Pryor prior to burning himself alive and I just it's disappointing what I mean as you your name check you know this is a pretty impressive cast actually I just didn't do it and Michael Caine he's coasting yeah he also plays he plays a gay which is kind of fun yes yes yeah well once closeted I don't know uh, it's it's not very fun actually Neil Simon movies just don't work they're kind of like Mel Brooks movies but not even that funny well yeah the thing with Neil Simon films is Okay, the thing with Neil Simon, The Odd Couple as a TV show actually surprisingly worked. I liked it better as than The Odd Couple film. Neil Simon shows I've seen on stage are okay. Some I actually enjoyed. The film versions, I, I really didn't. So... Maybe did he do the Owl and the Pussycat? I thought that one was okay. Yeah, yeah, he, I think he did do that. Yeah. But that's kind of the exception to the rule. My folks loved Neil Simon. They used to go see all the Neil Simon plays on Broadway or whatever, yeah. and they would come back raving about them. And I saw the playbills or whatever. But when I saw the movies themselves, if with the exception of that one, it was probably because just like we mentioned last time, Stretch and Look Good in it. Surprisingly enough, <laughs> well, there's a few actually. You know, there's and you brought it up. Uh, there's, there's there's a few that I was like, hmm. <laughs> Plus there were some good bits in it, like about the guy that rolled eggs at her. He made a spread of legs and rolled eggs at her. And it's like, George Siegel's like, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and there is there is a guy who, I, you know, it's funny. George Siegel, I, I think he's kind of fallen behind. Yes. But I really enjoyed his work. It was, he had uh, moments, yeah. He, he had moments. Actually, you know, dare me for saying this, but I think, you know, there, there's a similar guy there, Elliot Gould. Yes, I was just thinking Elliot Gould when you mentioned George Siegel, yes. But Gould did better with himself. Gould did better with himself in terms of success. Yes. And he, he chose better roles. I, I'm not sure what happened with George, but George, I think the thing with George, even though Gould did do edgy, Siegel did edgier. Yes, very much And so. then he had a problem because I think, I think... Well, I have to believe producers and, you know, maybe his casting people or his agents were like, well, you did so much as edgy stuff. We're only looking for super edgy or like this. And then he had a problem. Yeah, very possible. But anyway, the point is that I would see a lot of these films, like you mentioned, and mm. I don't know about the Broadway plays. I did not see them, but they just didn't work. I mean, uh, even that one was it Barefoot in the Park. That was like my folks' favorite friggin' play. And I was like, what are they laughing at? I don't get it. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was young, but I mean, still. I'm like, yeah, I, I just don't get Neil Simon. Yeah, I never saw the play of that. I saw the movie, and I was like, it's depressing. Yeah, exactly. I was like, how does Robert Redford look older than he does now? I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, on to yet another <laughs> feather in Michael Caine's cap. He does a couple of them around his time. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, hilariously mm. bad follow-up to the Irwin Allen disaster film of nearly a decade prior. Sleazy salvage skipper Kane, crusty old drunk Carl Malden, and the amazingly shrill and annoying Sally Field are trying to cash in on the earlier wreck. When they get to the site, they find another crew looking aboard alongside them, supposed naval medics run by Telly Savalas looking for survivors, but they're actually spies or terrorists looking for plutonium. Yes, they ship nuclear waste on a fucking cruise ship. And Kane's looking for gold, not salvage. And who are we rooting for again? 
when they get aboard and promptly trap, they do indeed find more folks aboard the equally annoying Shirley Partridge, I mean Jones, <laughs> sexy TV bit player Veronica Hamill, summer school's Mark Harmon, and perennial central casting hick Slim Pickens. Much double-crossing and sudden shifts and breakages occur, all the while keeping enough of the wreck floating above water or airtight enough to allow all these people to wander all over the damn sunken ship without drowning or even swimming. And just what kind of shit rescue operation did they hold back in 72 that left nearly a dozen survivors on board? The whole thing feels like a TV movie through and through, though unbelievably, I understand it did get a much maligned theatrical release, however briefly. Oh, this did the... This, that don't die. This did go theatrical, and you know what? This is part of that. Michael came bellowing out my line space, mm-hmm. and the other thing is, despite this, I guess we can almost call it a sort of impressive cast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sh- Shirley Jones, Jack Warden, Peter Boyle, you know, a known cast. <laughs> a known cast, yes, thank you. Uh, especially Kelly Sabalas, who's you know, Kelly's an interesting guy. He's done good work. I, I will not malign the great work he's done. He's done very impressive work as an actor, but he also was a guy who coasted. Yes. And and the guy we're covering tonight coasted. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're at this thing here where we're in our Michael Caine bellowing lines phase still. <laughs> and you know the problem with this movie? It's a cheaper sequel to a movie that, well, look, did you want a sequel? Yeah, like exactly. our lead died in the last one, and that was Gene Hackman. That was like the beginning of this phase of uh, nihilism, where you're rooting for people, and it still exists today, unfortunately. You're, you're rooting for people in a movie, and the leads die, and then you walk out of the theater, and it's like, that was fucked up. And then somebody goes, but yeah, the little boy lived. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but like everybody else fucking died. So this is in that, this, that concurrent phase at this time, even though it's you know six years, seven years later after the Poseidon Adventure. It's still directed by Irwin Allen. He couldn't get the A-game, except for Kane, who had, at this point is probably the only A-game actor. Costelli Field is still probably coasting off the Cannibal Run films, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. or about to do them. I'm not sure. I'm surprised Burt Reynolds is in this thing. It's a mess. It's like, okay, Michael Caine's not likable. Yeah. This guy's not likable. She's not likable. No, but Shrill. Like yeah. Yeah, and... It just sucks. There's no tears about it. Yeah, it's not a good movie. And, and, and actually, folks, if you go to Wikipedia, it's one of the very few Wikipedia things that actually elicit a, a laugh from me. The comment was... The only Erwin Allen disaster film not to receive an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. I can't believe they even got nominations. But anyway. So next up, another one that kind of sucks. The Island. Peter Benchley was riding high on the success of Jaws, first as a book, then as a film, and to a lesser extent, The Deep, which had the lovely Jackie Bissett, and an engaging plot about international piracy and deep sea diving, to its credit. So he promptly churns out this unflushed toilet of a story about 18th century pirates who've been inbreeding and surviving by boarding old rich men's yachts and killing them for whatever shit they have on board in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. As if this weren't bad enough, our entree in this excitingly grotty world of unwashed men and one really weird-looking pop-eyed girl is the reporter Michael Caine, who works for a paper magazine so low rent that they can't understand the, quote, $10 words he uses. He's determined enough to follow some unwanted story about the Triangle Mystery that he takes his annoying son along with him and books a dicey flight from a crazy fly-by-nighter with a scarred face who winds up crashing the plane to the point where it explodes... (laughs) 
and lands them all in some third world jail in the Bahamas. Eventually they run afoul of the pirates in question. He kills one of them and winds up a sex slave to the weird looking woman whose husband he offed while they brainwash the kid into believing he's one of them. Kane blows some shit up which summons the Coast Guard but the pirates kill them too only to end in a standoff when the kid has to choose sides. P.U. Anyone expecting another likable thriller in the vein of Jaws or a mystery adventure like The Deep is sure to be sorely disappointed by this weird drama slash horror hybrid so confused in tone and unpleasant to look at as to make you wonder why it even got past VHS much less all the way up to blue one of Kane's worst no question what, what I find interesting a lot of people don't don't discuss this that Michael Ritchie is one of the first African American directors of movies to actually not make African American centric films I want to put that out there he did Downhill Racer Robert Redford the candidate for Redford prime cut that brutal oh, I love prime cut smile Brutal Bruce Dern film about politics, which everybody should see. Bad News Bears, which is interesting. Semi-tough. Interesting Burt Reynolds film. Uh, we've never covered Burt Reynolds, but it's kind of hard to do that. We could. We could. And then, and then his career kind of like, whoop, 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 whoop. But, <laughs> Plus, he was kind of an but, asshole in the first place. So, <laughs> But the island... It's like so something like you don't really give somebody like that. And it, I, it was a really interesting book by Benchley. I actually read the Benchley book before I saw the movie. I'm like, wow, how are they gonna make this a movie? And the I have to say the only cool part of this film was at the very end where the kid's so fucking brainwashed by these people that you know he the dad just gets on the thing once he straightens his ass out and becomes the action hero, fires up that submachine gun and just like kills everybody mm-hmm. it's a mess this is the kind of thing that you know even back then in those days i knew post-production was a problem they probably delivered this movie like what do you get me <laughs> we, we can't release this so i i think it had a lot of studio tampering it's got a lot of familiar faces yeah we all know them david warner etc you know you mentioned it's just it's not likable it's it's even though michael Caine's in it yeah well the next one's a big step up as far as I'm concerned, but it's still a strange one. Dressed to Kill. Yes. Angie Dickinson gets naked and her body double masturbates on camera, only for some guy to grab her from behind and screw her in the shower. And that's literally the opening scene of the film. Of course... And he has... And he has a... a, a STD. <laughs> right? Yeah. He does. Yeah, yes, he does. Of course... She opens she opens the drawer to write him a love letter, like, like fucking you is so amazing. She finds, like, the thing from the doc, like... You have, like, 14 sexual transmitted diseases. It's just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so, of course, it also turns out to be some weird fantasy that she was having about peeping on her shrink while dressed in an old lady nightgown and getting a boring missionary hump from her boyfriend, which she rewards with the world's worst fake orgasm. I moaned with pleasure at his touch. Isn't that... you never experienced that? Isn't that what every man wants? A fake orgasm? I sure as hell hope not. <laughs> no, I say experience that, not want it. <laughs> That's another story. Okay, go uh, on. She's got a geek son who looks like Harry Potter working on building some giant mainframe computer in the garage and is seeing mm. Kane as a shrink while explicitly coming on to him. Tell him he stinks in bed? Since he actually has professional ethics and a wife, she winds up staring at Frida Kahlo pictures and <laughs> wordlessly cruising strange men who she promptly starts fantasizing about, then fucks in public in the back of a taxi while the driver watches. This is one horny, crazy bitch. Of course, when she tries to leave a note before doing the walk of shame, she finds out that the guy 
has syphilis and hasn't bothered reporting to the health department yet. And if that's not bad enough, she has a run-in with a tranny slasher, who after cutting her up in the guy's elevator, starts leaving threatening messages on her shrink's voicemail. Say, huh? So from here, it becomes a big mystery. Could it be her weird geek son who brings listening devices and wiretaps to the police station? And what about the whore who wants up the focus of a wrong-headed police investigation? Pino DiNaggio offers an explicitly Bernard Herman-esque score yes. to the Palmas Hitchcock gone pervert scenario and ridiculously overblown obsession with tracking shots. And there's some nice suspenseful bits with the whore getting chased by the tranny through city streets and subways that suggest more of a slasher film vibe. Hell, there's even some black exploitation business with a guy who looks like Lionel Jefferson harassing and chasing after her at the same time. Mm. There's a great twist ending here that you may or may not have seen coming, but which they'd never get away with in today's uptight Orwellian climate and our more bizarre cultural mores. But like cruising, there's a bit of underlying psychological truth to the disturbed nature of several characters in this film, except that fact or not. Oh, it's it's one of Brian De Palma's best pictures for me. Yeah, hands down. I'll agree. Yeah, I'll agree. One, uh, one of Brian De Palma's best films. Huge, huge kudos for Michael Caine for doing this role. Mm-hmm. I, I I see you didn't give anything away, so I'm not going to give anything away to anybody who possibly may not have seen this film. And there's probably some of you out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, Angie Dickinson, old D. Martin movies, Frank Sinatra movies, Policewoman, and then this. Because <laughs> there's some stuff she did and some stuff, the body double, allegedly. I mean, I say allegedly because that's still in question. <laughs> and then, you know, Keith Gordon, who wound up becoming a really good director as he got older, plays her son. And yeah, yeah. Harry Potter-ish, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better, like, let's reach out there for a word. It's a twisted movie. Oh, yeah. It's it's 1980, and this is a time of cruising. This is a time of, like, suddenly, bang. Things hardcore. Have, hardcore. Things have changed. And let's, let's start making movies that reflect society as it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, huge props for Brian De Palma, huge props for the studio to back him on this. And, you know, and Michael Caine, wow. I mean, where was the Michael Caine nomination for this movie is all I got to say for this. Y'all, no, serious, I'm being serious. I'm not being... No, it's true. It was pretty brave of him to do that. Let's put pretty brave of him to do that and... A little shocking. And the very, yeah, the denouement, the final bits of this film are like, yo, okay, so, you know, we, we spoke about Hitchcock and we spoke about Argento and we probably haven't done, unless we did, <laughs> we've been doing this for years, folks, a De Palma show. We may have. No, no. It's like De Palma is also a, a Hitchcock devotee. To say the least. To say the least. <laughs> and, you know, and then, but he does these diopter shots that, that Hitchcock didn't do too much. He's really pop font of these diopter shots which on the left side you have a medium shot but on the right side you have like a medium close-up shot which is like ah, okay but the palma is really a kind of guy that i i have to say that more often than than not his stuff does leave me a little colder than argento but there, there are moments where bang it works you know, he doesn't have a large work of bang it works for me, but this is one of the pictures like I could watch this over and over and just you know, I wanna see it fifteen times in a row. Nothing like that. But I'm saying <laughs> I could see this like every year or every two years and it'd be fresh. Or I could sit down and show us that hey, did you ever see this movie? No, why should watch this? That's my problem with doing it in the Palma show because his early stuff some of it's incredible. I mean, 
okay, yes, he sort of backs off and yet at the same time pushes the envelope further with Body Double, mm. where he brings in uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They did a famous version of their Relax video mm. in this one. Mm. And it really kind of goes to, he had a big thing where he wanted to make hardcore porn yes. mainstream. I remember this. And he was really pushing for it with Body Double, but it doesn't quite go there. Close. But, you know, you have Blow Up, you have this film, and you had that, which were all really good, and I really liked them a lot. And then later he starts doing, like, mob films, and it gets a little more mainstream. I, just, I don't care well, anymore. The, the mob film he did, which we, we covered in the Sean Connery thing, which I think I, I liked more than you did, we, there was that, and the Mission Impossible picture, because we covered that in the Tom Cruise show. But even so, this was like, the earlier stuff really works for me, and after that it's like, yeah... I mean, I know he was trying to shit some of his Hitchcock obsessions because everybody's accusing him of being a clone, which is not really true. Right. But nonetheless, you know, that, that's kind of where it stops for me. But, but, but if we want to go really psycho, Michael Caine, we can go to the Oliver Stone movie. Oh, yeah. So next up, <laughs> talk about cashing in, The Hand. Seriously, this is a painful film to sit through. Oliver Stone takes a break from war movies and conspiracy films to deliver this nasty gram about a newspaper syndicate comic strip writer and artist who, amidst an argument with his odd-looking wife, Andrea Marcovici, gets his drawing hand lopped off by a truck when she decides to pass a few cars on a two-lane road during an argument. There's an oncoming truck, and he's trying to get one of those people on the proper lane to slow down so she can get back on the proper side. Whoop! Off goes his fucking hand. She's trying to start her own life, quote-unquote, in New York, and having something going on with her new-agey dance teacher, whatever the hell he is. He's out of work now and is feeling smaller by the day. She tries to farm the strip out to another artist for money, but when he and the editor starts deviating from his scripts, he gets demonstrative and the deal goes, that's it, it's off. There's a lot more family drama and about the longest descent into one man's personal hell ever filmed, though I hear leaving Las Vegas is pretty bad. No thank you. About the lightest this gets is when he meets a doofy, plain-jane Jodie Foster type, who drops by a cabin he vacations by himself at, who fucks him but doesn't really want to get more involved than that. Naturally, he goes beyond depression and phantom pains to seeing hallucinations of his missing hand, and soon enough it or he starts killing people. He gets thrown into a nuthouse, but there's one of those stupid slasher film endings where the hand may have been real all along. Depressing, overly grim, very hard to watch. If you want a good crawling hand movie, try The Crawling Hand, a 1963 sci-fi JD film with the skipper Alan Hale in it. It's so much more fun and so much more watchable than this one, which is basically celluloid to slit your wrist to. Oh, it's just tough to sit through for many reasons. Uh, one of them was Andrea Marcovici, who... <laughs> no, yeah. who was a Broadway star, musicals and straight comedies, and occasional film person, during the production of this, or during post-production, was actually raped and brutally beaten. And it was it was in the press, and then it was like... Yeah. Yeah, and then and then this movie comes out, and there's like this role she has, which she wanted them to delay the movie because she was having some psychosis, you know, unrelated, but in a way like this movie. PTSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was a movie that came out, and like, wow, Michael Caine doesn't come off good. She doesn't no. come off good. No. It's an Oliver Stone movie. Doesn't come off good. Uh, <laughs> no. There's nothing good about it. Yeah, and Bruce McGill, who nobody ever likes, and he always does weird, unlikable roles, so it's okay, we're cool with that. And it's, in a way, I think maybe, <sighs> I don't want to be reaching, maybe he said this in print somewhere, who knows. Maybe Oliver Stone was doing a, a homage to something like The Beast with Five Fingers, you know? Maybe, maybe. maybe he was doing like a homage to psychological terror a la Val Luton. Or maybe he was doing an homage to something, you know, Hitchcock-esque, but 
when we're still dealing with Kane, who is a good actor, but still in bellowing lines mode. <laughs> and he's not, you know, because, okay, here's, here's why he's saying this. Oliver Stone is not the most emphatic of directors. And so by emphatic, I mean like working with your actor or actresses and seeing how they want to approach something or seeing how you can help them reach the level of whatever you want them to do. So I don't believe that Stone is that kind of director. So you got you're gonna leave your 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 performers to to fester on their own. So they're gonna look at the script and say, Okay, you're just gonna direct me, but I'm gonna have to pull into myself what I want. So I'm gonna shout my lines again because I lost my hand. <laughs> you know, and, and and it's a strange movie. Yeah, it's unlikable. And and yeah. I don't see where it could have been good. This is another strange movie that only could have been bankable based on the cast, I guess. The cast, yeah, especially Kane. So next up, he does Victory. We spoke to this in our Stallone show. It's a weird John Huston film about World War II POWs facing off in an, quote, international soccer match as a metaphor for and cover for an actual escape attempt. Kane's the captain for the English team, obviously. There's really nothing more to say about this one that we didn't already cover. I... Don't remember what I said about that, but I think it's not entirely terrible, and, and I think it's it's pretty cool. It's kind of odd. What a cast! <laughs> yeah, lots of true. lots of professional soccer players. Not my 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 thing, but you know, you got Kane's Pele's in it. Pele's in it, and uh, you know, Jerry Fisher did the cinematography. Jerry Fisher worked on a couple of Argento movies, most famously Opera. And so I hear they're remaking this. Curious. But that being said, I think Stallone and Michael Caine fans may want to see us to see the teaming up of the two titans of the Intercontinental Bellowing Championship. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking, of course, but I'm just playing light with that, yeah. So next up is the film that we had mentioned earlier, Death Trap. An extremely shrill and annoying Diane Cannon is the drunken tiger wife of perpetually pissed-off Broadway playwright Michael Caine, who's having some trouble delivering another hit. One of his students, Superman himself, Christopher Reeve, drops a murder mystery that he thinks will do it, but he has to kill the guy and steal it to use as his own. Of course, they have to get rid of the body and deal with nosy neighbors, and there are the usual plot twists and turns. There's even a quick homage to Kane's The Black Windmill in one framing shot in front of one. Trying to keep spoilers to a minimum, there's a weird twist that Kane and Reeve are actually gay lovers, and this is combined with the fact that the Kane and Kane relationship is strained, to say the least, so modern audiences may well receive this one better than it did in theatricals of the dawn of the 80s. Even so, the film doesn't work quite as well as you'd think, either as a Hitchcockian thriller or with its somewhat jarring undertone of intended comedy, particularly as it hails from the pen of paranoia specialist Ira Levin, and to be fair, Kane is screaming like a lunatic throughout, both to his wife and his boyfriend. That said, there's a whole lot of implied and actual backstabbing and mistrust going down, with all the requisite twists and turns, so you can definitely tell it's a Levin job. And perhaps more importantly, folks like to compare this one to Sleuth, which despite what they say online was a much less entertaining film, and far more comedic and lighthearted in tone and soundtrack. Whatever you think about a younger, more likable Kane playing against a goofy, grandfatherly Lawrence Olivier aside, to modernize at least, Death Trap works much, much better between the two. Despite some of the aforementioned gotchas, I kind of like this one. There's no question. Oh, I like this one, too. Odd choice with director, Sidney Lumet, who yeah. did hard-hitting things like Serpico. The Offense. The Offense and Network. And, you know, yeah. we've we, we got a huge list of movies. A whole man. bunch of things in our Connery show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sidney Lumet, who started out in American television, live TV. This is a really oddball kind of inversion of Sleuth. And I, I love how it plays out. 
and yes, you know, Michael Caine is it's twisty. I like I like things like this. I like things that are twisty. Mm-hmm. You if you've not seen it and you watch it from you know, it's it's hard to do a show, podcast show like this, folks, and like well, please don't tell me everything that happens. Yeah, when, yeah. My wife grasps about that. Oh, you give away so many spoilers. Like I'm trying not to, but you know, we 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 both try not to for those that listen. But it's hard to recommend something if we both recommend it, or one of us highly recommends it. It's hard to to resist a spoiler when when there's something really cool we want you to see, or I want you to see, or or you want people to see it's it's difficult but this is one of those movies you know what yeah i think we both want you to see this yeah definitely we, we gave you some hints and stuff i don't really want to go too much it's, it's like you know please remember christopher reeve was a guy who did a lot of theatrical work he you know he did a lot of work in a the theater before he was superman and he was known for that and so that came across as a blessing for that guy i guess and and a curse yeah, and and so he's used to stage work, and and you know Michael Caine did stage work too. This is very stagey, you know. And it's a weird spot in Christopher Reeve's career too, because it's between Superman two and the Thornbirds. So wasn't he in yes. that one too? Yeah, also no, unlikable. That's Richard Chamberlain. Oh, Richard Chamberlain. Yes. Okay, sorry yeah, about that. Different guys. <laughs> no, this is this is no. This is still the spot where he could walk. I would say. Yeah. You know, not to be funny. He did something unlikable though around that time, like '84, on a TV uh, miniseries, I believe. You know, it's a very strange thing I saw Richard Chamberlain do, and I was shocked. And I had to like do research. He did a Rare Window remake, really, for TV, where he played it in a wheelchair. Wow. And I I found out he did not have his accident at that time as of yet. Oh. But Reeve did something like the Thornbird, something akin to that around that time, around '84. Yeah, he did. He did. That was very unlikable. Yeah, he did he did a couple of things? He did that thing with Morgan Freeman. That was Morgan Freeman's first big breakout thing, Street Smart, where where Chris, Christopher Reeve was a reporter, it was a Canon picture, and Morgan Freeman was a pimp. <laughs> And 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 it was like one of Morgan Freeman's first movies. Christopher Reeve was like a news reporter, and it was sort of like um, a journalistic, opportunistic, you know. Yeah, so he did play those kind of things. But this, you know, again, without getting too much, because we have a couple more Michael Caine films. Death Trap, we we both highly recommend. Definitely. So speaking of paychecks, blame it on Rio. Oof. I remembered seeing this incessantly on HBO back in the day and had vaguely fond memories of it for whatever reason. So I attempted to rewatch it a few years back. Oh my god, what a mistake. Painful, painful midlife crisis film directed by, of all people, Stanley Donan. Kane is a middle-aged husband having issues in his marriage who accompanies his teenage daughter and her pal and her father, can you believe this already, on a vacation to Rio. Before you know it, Kane is screwing his buddy's daughter, Michelle Johnson, the girl from Waxwork and Dr. Giggles. Yes, she went far. And she's stalking him and sexting him to the point where, since she won't continue the affair, she tries to kill herself. It comes out to the father, but he doesn't give a shit because he's been screwing Kane's wife. In the end, there's a supposed, quote, happy ending, where everyone goes back to their assignment relationship and age roles and King gives a shrug and a wink voiceover. Holy shit, were they kidding with this one? Uh, well... <laughs> this is directed by Stanley Donen of all people, yeah. like, Singing in the Rain and we got, like, Joe Bologna, of all people, was was the co-star in this. And I, I think they gave Joe Bologna this little thread here because he was so fantastic in 
my favorite year with Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe Bologna really, like, out of nowhere, here's a guy who was, like, really big back in the day, and then he's this movie with Peter O'Toole and Seed Caesar. And Joe Bologna was amazing. You know, he was mainly a theater guy at this time. And I guess they said, hey, let's put him back in movies. And uh, it's an oddball kind of thing. Yeah, you know, Valerie Harper, who? Uh, Michelle Johnson, Demi Moore, before she was Mrs. Bruce Willis. It's okay. I think they want to remake it again. Jeez. Seriously? They want to gender, like, twist it. And it's okay-ish. I don't hate it. I wouldn't go back to it. But before that, Educating Reader, which is one of those heavy movies. You know, every so often, everybody does a heavy movie. And this Lewis Gilbert, who had done a couple of Bond movies, mainly ones we don't like. <laughs> so this Liverpoolian working class woman, Julie Walters, who played younger than her years, it looks like, goes to school, goes back to school, and micro cancer professor who's an alcoholic, and okay, you can see that. <laughs> <laughs> and like they have this thing, love hate thing, and he kind of, it's sort of like <sighs> Pygmalion. I was thinking that, my fair lady, but yeah. It's sort of like Pygmalion, where he gets her on the straight and narrow, and there's like the hint of a, of a, of a, I would say quasi-romantic relationship, but he, he was nominated for every major acting award, but he only won the Golden Globe. Oh, no, untrue. He won the British uh, BAFTA. He won the British Film Actors Award. He was cheated out of the Oscar, but he won the Golden Globe, and he won the BAFTA for his role as a professor. So, no. Kudos on that guy. So next up, Jaws the Revenge, Jaws 4. Much lambasted conclusion to the Jaws series, which features the wife and son's mourning Roy Scheider's off-screen death between films, and the younger one's on-screen death from Sharks in the Bay at Christmas in this film. They head down to Jamaica to get away from it all, running into an overacting Melvin Van Peebles trying to work the Rastamon vibration, and a happy-go-lucky middle-aged Michael Caine as the hotshot, risk-taking pilot of a puddle jumper. Eventually, the shark thing comes back into the picture. The wife tries to take revenge for the loss of her husband and son, as if all sharks globally were to blame for what happened back in Martha's Vineyard, and almost everyone gets killed in the process. You half assume a happy ending between the old bag and Caine, the end. It's pretty bad, but I've developed a strange affection for it over the years, from the hilariously cheesy Jaws 3 to Jaws and Jaws 2. I went in reverse order, mind. To an eventual appreciation, well, let's say comfort with this one as well. Originally laughing how awful it was, to actually sort of getting a weird kick out of it. Bottom line, it killed the series, and it doesn't have the gimmickry and goofiness of Sharks vs. SeaWorld and Lou Gossett Jr. that Jaws 3D had, but look, not only the Italian knockoffs from films like Lamberto Bava and Bruno Mattei, but even Orca is a much better film than most or all of the Jaws sequels, so take that from once it comes. I like this one. Uh, it seems like as much as you do. I, I, the more I see it... The more I like well, it. The, yeah, the more <laughs> often... I put it this way, the more often I see it, the more I, I, I have a an affection for it. Yeah. And I, I I like how he sort of disappears and comes back again as like this is like the, I I don't know, like how's our actors disappear from a film and then pop up again? But in any case he's sort of heroic. <laughs> um I what I don't like that these Jaws films did is they off screen killed off people like Roy Scheider's character. Yes. Oh yeah, he's out of town. You're divorced. I'm like he's fucking dead. You know, come on, because I put like a pallor over these movies. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, this is like one of the most hated Jaws films, and this is like one of the films most talked about in Mike Michael Caine's career. Is like one of the movies where I like, can't give a shit. 
No, he probably didn't have a lot to work with. He knew what he was doing. And then he's like, oh, yeesh. But Joe Sargent <laughs> had directed the great Taking a Pelham, one, two, three, the original, yes. and a couple of other films. So I'm sure he wasn't coasting. I'm sure he he wasn't in the I don't give a shit phase. No, because he's likable here. You can tell when he doesn't give a shit, like The Swarm or Blame It on Rio. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think our, our, our whole app, take on this movie might have been maybe emphasized by other what other people have yeah. been writing true if i can go that far i think other people saying this is a terrible shitty movie it's not that bad I mean, it's, it's not that bad and the king is actually not that bad yes he occasionally bellows but sometimes he speaks normally so <laughs> so there's that I, it's not that bad it's it's fun-ish so for the 90s he more or less slows down he does the Muppet Christmas Carol, and then we get to 2000. We talk about Miss Congeniality and Get Carter. So, did you want to cover anything from the 90s? Well, I, I want I want to jump in a few things. He plays Sherlock Holmes in uh, Without a Clue, which yeah. at one time was oh, and there's another, just two good movies in there actually. Without a Clue uh, by Tom Eberhardt, who did very uh, likable Night of the Comet, and you know he had like this little brief following for like oddball movies so I think they gave him this thing uh, I think Ben Kingsley played Watson it didn't work then also Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for Frank Oz of all people uh, <laughs> they, they team Steve Martin and Michael Caine it's actually not bad it's like two older guys going down to Rio trying to scam uh, young girls for their money you know and hopefully getting laid it was a fun picture for what it was there's, there's like a, a Peter Bogdanovich film version of Noises Off, which was a big broy thing. So what picture you want to carry cover next? Muppets? Well they did the Muppets and Muppet Christmas Carol, I should say. And I only saw this once years ago, so I really have nothing to say about it. Except that in terms of Muppet films, basically it's the Muppet movie and then forget about it after that. Even Muppets Take Manhattan wasn't that good. But, you know, people love them, so I'm not going to begrudge them about kids' films. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I have nothing to say about the Muppets movie. I'm sorry. Okay, so we jump right up to 2000. Oh, you're jumping further than I. I, I. I do want to mention, this is the kind of show we do, folks. I do want to mention the guy we've never done a show on. I don't know if he ever will. <laughs> Mr. Steven Seagal. Who, oh, jeez. <laughs> that would be a fun one. <laughs> who was so popular at this point, and we're talking 19... Early 90s, yeah. Yeah, early 90s, late 80s. He was given a directorial thing. You know, and this is at the point where Steven Seagal, you still look like a human being. <laughs> and uh, he had, he was an environmentalist, and he still had things he wanted to say before he came total dick possibly raping women they say casting couch 400 pounds yeah yeah before before he came a huge disappointment to a lot of us who Jean-Claude Van Damme has not become True. actually True. and uh, I, I, I'm getting the utmost respect for Mr. Van Damme Van Damme has a sense of humor about himself and that says it all yeah and even though he's done a ton of pictures making a, a podcast show problematic we would have to agree to do uh, a cherry pick for sure. But Seagal, on the other hand, who started like a fucking beast, mm-hmm. did a lot of good movies, a lot of good movies. I mean, B movies, A movies. Kind of hit ground, plummeted, came back, and then, like, really, as you just said, wow. But he did this <laughs> one picture he directed where they said, okay, 
You want to talk about the environment and oil affecting indigenous American Indians? Hello? <laughs> All right, talk about prescient. Yep. And Michael Caine played the, <laughs> the oil company guy. Except, I don't know what happened here. We all know Michael Caine has a he's a fair-skinned guy with a light-skinned hair, and he has jet black hair, making him look unusual. <laughs> and, and you mean he didn't look like an American Indian? <laughs> and this movie is almost like a, a, a recall of Conan the Barbarian, because a lot of the stunt guys are a lot of the Franco Colombos in this picture, and a lot of the other guys who play Conan. <laughs> yeah, Spagnac Thorson's in this picture. Yes, wow. you know. And and there's like a lot of odd people in the supporting cast of this movie. Yeah. And the score is by Basil Polidori's. And so it's like, hey. So which film is this again? On Deadly Ground. On Deadly Ground. And so it's like, okay, you know what? <laughs> so I go to see this movie, and I'm like, Seagal should not give himself monologues. <laughs> And then, I don't know, Michael was encouraged to, Michael, be your bellowing self for some <laughs> of those movies before you got good again. Okay! <laughs> and so there's there's these things when the, there's the confrontation scenes, you know, where the, the guy who's like a rough and tumble, I think Seagal was like supposed to be the guy who's like the enforcer for the, for the oil guys, you know, like get the people out of the land, you know, and then has a change of mind because he's probably an American Indian by heritage. I'm trying to remember this all, folks. I think I'm right, too. And then he has a change of heart. And then Michael Caine's like the big evil guy with this jet black fucking shoe polish hair. <laughs> and it's like, it's weird to see that, you know? <laughs> no, it doesn't make him look younger. It makes Michael Caine look like weird. <laughs> and, and then the confrontations are very strange. It's, it's very... Yeah, it's an environmentalist picture. It's an action adventure. It was put into a stir-fry thing. Forget about a blender. A stir-fry. <laughs> and it did not do well. It got mostly negative reviews. I liked it for what they were trying to do, but it was not successful because, you know, much like Star Trek V. You know, was that the one with the dolphins? No, no, no. That was the one search, the one where he was looking for the uh, Spock's brother, Lawrence Luckenville. Mm -hmm. that? Okay. The one that Shatner directed. You know, it's like you need somebody to cover your ass. And I think Seagal in this picture, they just said, hey, go for it. You know, we're behind you. The the only one that comes out of this pretty much unscathed was uh, Joan Chen, okay. who everybody still liked around this time. Where happened to her? So, yeah, it's it's a very weird environmental action event. Uh, action adventure movie. Bullet to Beijing was during this period. Now, I spoke of this before. This was the return of Harry Palmer. And, yes, that Harry Palmer. And uh, Harry Allen Towers. Hello? Amazing, you're still doing films at that point. Yes, Harry Allen Towers, 1995, made for Canadian British television. So we brought back an older Harry Palmer, who brought back into the fold, having to deal with Russians, blah, blah, blah. The Michael Sarazen, older, puffier, didn't even look like a human being anymore. We didn't even <laughs> recognize him. Jason Connery's in this, Sean's son. Music by Rick Wakeman from Yes. You mean not Neil so, Connery from OK Connery? <laughs> Oh, Jason. Okay, Connor. And and it wasn't half bad, uh, except it got little to no distribution or word of mouth on, on the side of the uh, of the aisle. 
Let's see. Burt Kwok is in this thing. Wow. Yeah, and Michael Gambone. The go-to so, Asian for British film and television. Yes, yes, yes. There were, there were a few of these, but Bullet to Beijing wasn't half bad. Um, the odd thing was, <laughs> I really wanted to mention something about this. It was directed by George Mahaka, and people say, well, who the fuck is that? And George Mahaka did, like, My Bloody Valentine? <laughs> Hello? Wow. 1981, the original. I love that film. It's always edited for some reason. Yeah, it, it was at an office party. He's another fan favorite. So, he always a Canadian filmmaker. He did, he did some odd things. He also did Scandali, which was a thriller giallo knockoff which hard, with hardcore stuff. Filmed in Quebec. I know. I had it. I seen it. So very strange stuff. But you know, Bullet to Beijing wasn't half bad. I wouldn't call it a Harry Palmer revamp or reboot, but it was one of a few. Like there were a few around that time period. Oddly enough, IMDb does not list the other ones, but there were two or three others. I know there was uh, Midnight to uh, Midnight to Dawn was one of them. There were two or three others. Uh, I had them all at some point. I guess they were very, very hard to find. They were all very similar. You know, older, Michael Caine, late 90s, and he was playing in that kind of thing. Older Harry Palmer, still trying to be a ladies' man, but you're like, you're my grandfatherly type. That whole <laughs> geek. During this period, because we're going to get right up to Miss Congeniality, I just, I just want to fill in yeah. some gaps here. He did Cider House Rules, which is uh, Lassie Halstrom. He actually won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor and won a couple of other awards. And it's like one of those heavy dramedy things. And uh, yeah, nice. Kudos to you. You won, you won an award. You recognize an actor. He was in Quills, which is one of those Sadian things. I'm sure I'm surprised you didn't pick up on that. Uh, Jeffrey Rush played the side. Directed by Philip Philip Kaufman directed that right stuff. And Kate Winslet is in that when she was still burying breasts and banging people in movies. <laughs> Before she's like, yes, I'm too much of a star now. <laughs> Very strange, unlikable movie. Well, you can't make a film about the side and make a likable, can you? <laughs> Uh, you sure? Lucky <laughs> Phoenix in this, and he's he's really good. I mean, it's a lot of good people. Did you see Lucky so. Venus, the guy that was TV uh, commercial star? <laughs> no, Lucky Phoenix. Lucky <laughs> Venus, yes, Lucky Venus. Diet Coke, ooh, got... look at him. <laughs> Lucky Venus. <laughs> Lucky, Lucky. <laughs> wait, wait, look wait. up, people. Lucky Venus, V-A-N-O-U-S, for a good laugh. <laughs> And before, before we got to this geniality, we're, we're getting to the, the, the long run here, is Get Carter Remake, yes. which actually I like. And does have some fans beside myself. Yeah, what, what I said, just for the record, because it's quick, is I, we spoke to this in our Stallone show, and I thought it was mm-hmm. a weak and decidedly pale remake of the original, and Kane gets a token part. Yeah, you did say that. Yeah. And, and, and I said, I thought Stallone was actually invested in the role. I'm not sure what happened between execution and delivery, but it's a little nihilistic yep. for Stallone. It was a little mean. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, to make a movie where your, your, your lead begins. You know, it worked in the 70s. It's harder to do this in the 2000s. You begin a film where your, your lead is unlikable. He does unlikable things. Actually, film, things that 
are going to turn the audience against them. Are you, you're with me, right? Mm-hmm. And then as the film progresses, he has to change your heart. Yeah, which what happens in, in like 99% of films of this movie. And then at the same time, it's like it's hard to bring the audience in the pocket when the change comes. Mm-hmm. If the direction is not strong enough, and that's where your direction comes in. And that's where your supporting cast comes in. And they cast Michael Caine as the lead baddie. So changing uh, format, uh, for lack of a better word. And, and you know, so and, and Michael, for some reason, decided to play this as bellowing Michael of the old. <laughs> and, and, and it was like a shock to see that yeah. because, you know, like Stallone is actually underplaying oh, it. Oh, Stallone is quiet. He barely, I mean, he has lines, but he's very underplaying it, if you will. He's, He's, he's underplaying. It's it's one. Yeah, you know, I, I might have said this in a Stallone show. He's, he's underplaying this. He's he's actually doing quite well. I like him in this. I actually like this movie. It's got problems, yeah. but I think Kane is one of the things that fucks this movie up yes. because, <laughs> you know, they bring Kane as the bad guy. Okay, all right, you're playing the bad guy, and then he's blasting out his roles again <laughs> sort of like well <laughs> you got Sylvester Stallone playing me well I don't give a fuck how much you paying me so yeah <laughs> I I don't know what happened here but this could have been a better film that's for sure <laughs> I I no, I know you don't like it as much as I do far from it but I, I think it's just not a bad Stallone film and I think it has something going. I like it much better than Miss Congeniality. Well, Miss Congeniality was the same year, actually, as Get Carter. We spoke about this in our Shatner show, if you go all the way back there. It's a typically amusing Sandra Bullock comedy of the era, if you like those, with tomboy FBI agent Bullock going undercover at a beauty contest as one of the contestants. Kane is her mentor at the pageant, who has to more or less teach her how to be a girl while she wows the other contestants and judges with her more manly skills at fighting, takedowns, and armament. We spoke to this one briefly, like I said, during the Shatner show, and he's also in this one alongside Demolition Man slash Catwoman sidekick Benjamin Bratt, but it's really all Bullock's show. I thought it was a fun film. You don't like it, though, so... <laughs> I'm not a big fan of it, and I have to say that I'm not a huge fan of Sandra Bullock. You know, for a variety of reasons I'm not going to get into. Although, although, when I saw her in... Uh... Let me guess, Speed? Well, actually, no, I, I, I like Speed. I like Speed. I like Speed. It's hard to do a Keanu show because he's he's a he's a character, but you know he's not bad as people think. No, I I, I when I saw Gravity, the uh, movie she did with Downey Jr. when she was the uh, one or two astronauts in space, I was like, all right, I'll watch this. I was like, well, okay. I said, no, I was serious. That that's acting, and that's intense, and that's like, okay, I give her props. But all this other shit she does, I don't know. And this is a shit movie, shit idea. Who gives a fuck? They're light so. rom-com type things, you know. Some of them are enjoyable, like, what is that one? Mm. The 24 Hours, whatever the hell it was she did with Hugh Grant. The Michigan Genie films was just the first one. The Proposal oh. with Ryan Reynolds. Those are fun films. I enjoy them, but my wife loves them. Yeah. So I'm, like, yeah, I'm biased, but... I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of her. I, 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 but, but yeah, no, folks... We're never going to do a Sandra Bullock show. So. <laughs> I didn't think we would. <laughs> but, but if you ever see Gravity by, uh, I think it was this year's Academy Award winning director, whatever his name is, um, the guy who did uh, the film uh, Roma. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. That was really good. Gravity is really good. Highly recommend it. 
He continues to show up in weird films like this. Again, you know, Austin Powers, the original, I enjoyed that a lot. It was a nice pastiche mm. of several films. Great music, too, man. Oh, wow. yeah. Uh, very 60s. Good, really good soundtrack. I should have the soundtrack. I got it in the 99 cents store back when. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was like one of those CD world or something, but it was 99 cents. Great, great catch. I still play that CD sometimes. You know, it was kind of like Bond meets Barbarella meets, you name a 60s sort of spy, sort of psychedelic film. That's yeah. in there. He captured that. Captured it it's well. A really good job. And it was yeah, a fun really. film. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Second one wasn't too bad. Yeah. It was a little lesser, but... Yeah. You lost Elizabeth Hurley, or she's got a small part in it at least. But then you start going to, you know, we came up with dick and fart jokes, and then eventually, like I said, the third one you get with Beyonce, or all her name was. That was Goldmember. Oh, uh, God. You know, nasty shit. And sure enough, there's Michael Caine in Goldmember. Big, what was that guy there? Uh, big Anus, or whatever the hell's name was. It was the big fat, oh, fat bastard. That was it. Like, yeah, really? fat bastard. That's, that's not yeah. funny. I'm sorry. I like fart jokes, but come on. It, it kind of went outside. It was a one-movie joke, kind of like So I Married an Axe Murderer to the nth degree, and somehow he expanded to like four films, which should not have been done. But, he, you know, like I said, Kane's in this one. You think of it what you think of it. A lot of people love these films, all of them. I like the first one a lot. After that, yeah, you, you can stuff them. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you like The Quiet American. Uh, I have not even seen it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, highly recommend this. This is... Good. This is gold. Uh, my co-host hasn't seen this. This is like by Philip Noyce. Oh, I hope we're pronouncing this right. Yeah, Noyce. He's done heavy movies. He's done light movies. He's done anything we know. I don't know. <laughs> Patriot, Patriot Games. Okay. Oh, yeah. Collector. I remember that. This is a movie where it takes place in Vietnam. It's like a remake of the... Uh, Graham Greene, The Quiet American. The book. And there was a... Uh, Alec Guinness version. And this is sort of an update. So, Brendan Fraser's like young-ish, cock-strolling, you know, like CIA guy. And Michael Caine plays the older British intelligence guy. He's already got a thing going with this, this Asian check. And they're in Vietnam. They're on the turnover period. 1952, Saigon. And there's a lot of stuff going on here. And it's really good. It's a really quiet performance by Michael Caine. It's a really excellent, excellent performance by Brendan Fraser, of all people. A lot of supporting cast are Vietnamese and French people. Look for this. It's a really good film. It's I highly recommend this. It's a quiet movie. It's a quiet movie. It's about betrayal. It's about betrayal in on many different levels, including those about romance. You know, if you, if you trust someone so much and they, they fall in love with someone you're in love with, so where's your trust level end? Mm-hmm. You know? And this this actress, I guess she's been amazing, Duo Tai Haiyan. I, I don't know where she She's sort of like a biling kind of chick. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like her. She's probably not as fucking crazy as her. And she's sort of like, we all know biling, right? Yep. And it's a very good movie. It's I highly recommend this. It's a quiet espionage film. But it's also about betrayal and other things. And uh, 
So after the Muppet movie, you wanted to jump into? <laughs> oh, well, basically that was it for me, because what we get to here is in the 2000s, he starts doing a lot of voiceover work and video games, and of course, starts taking over as Alfred for the Batman yes. series in Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and he also does Inception, which I know you liked. So I don't have too much to say about these. You know, people know I don't really like the DC films much. Okay, so are you going to do this to me, man? <laughs> I, so after being used to Alfred Go, or Golf, depends on this various pronunciations of the name, who we all love from all these uh, Hammer films and knockoffs, as Alfred in the, the Michael Keaton Batman movies, Michael Keaton shows up in the Christopher Nolan Batman movie starring uh, Christian Bell. And the intensity is dialed back, and he's, I don't know, Michael, I think Chris Nolan found something in Michael Caine that, like, tapped into him. And it's like, okay, you know, you don't have to do this. You could do this, and you could do that. So I found his interpretation of Alfred very interesting. I really quite liked it. He did three of these. He did, you know, Batman Begins, and he was in Dark Knight and Dark, Dark Knight, Knight Rises. Yeah. The Dark Knight Rises. I thought all three of those Chris Nolan movies were just like, especially, he has such warm moments in The Dark Knight Rises, the last one, 2012, where you've seen that, of course, yeah. where he's just like pretty much given up on Batman. Like, I don't know if you're ever going to get your act fucking together. You're like, your psychosis is worse than the psychosis of the people you're, you're, that are the villains. All these Chris Nolan movies are so fucking deep, they're almost impossible, impenetrable to decipher. And, and the, one of the last shots of The Dark Knight Rises is Alfred sitting in a bar in Italy, outdoor bar, and he looks over and he sees the guy who used to be Bruce Wayne sitting with the woman who used to be the villainess, and they look over and they have a knowing acknowledgement of each other. I thought it's a very sweet, very nice moment, and I kind of like that. I thought that was really good. In between all this crap was Children of Men, great movie by Alfonso Cuaron. I'm sorry, it's the guy who also directed Gravity, the Sandra Bullock movie I mentioned before. Very futuristic movie with Clive Owen, who was supposed to be a Bond at one point. Dystopian thriller, very weird movie, very downbeat. You know, it's kind of like I want to cut my wrist kind of movie. But Michael Caine's very, very good in that. Quieter Michael Caine. And I liked him a lot in... What, the Sleuth remake? The Sleuth remake was okay. It was okay. He's playing the uh, Lawrence Olivia part. Mm -hmm. No, Now You See Me. Did you ever see this thing? Yeah, I never saw this one. Oh, you should see it. It's fun as hell. By Louis Leteria, who did the original Transporter movie. It's a heist movie about magicians. It's very funny, and it's very clever, and Michael Caine plays this very rich fuck who <laughs> they're trying to outwit, and has the most bizarre cast. Jesse Eisenberg, who normally I don't care about, Mark Ruffalo, Woody Harrelson, Isla Fisher, Dave Franco, Morgan Freeman. It's Fun, but a capital F, not for fuck, fun. <laughs> I, now You See Me is a, a fun movie. There's a lesser sequel, like Now You See Me Again or some shit like that. It's actually Now You See Me 2, which is like four years later. But, you know, these Now You See Me films, I recommend. They're fun. And Michael Caine is like a lot of fun as a bewitching older megalomaniac. And... 
He's not bellowing lines. He's, <laughs> he's kind of a sinister fuck. He's also in Sherlock Gnomes. One of, <laughs> he's in Sherlock Gnomes, yes, but he's also in one of my personal favorite movies. If, if ever he does enough films for us to do a show, Interstellar. It's a, another Chris Nolan movie. It's a very 2001-esque film. 2014, 2015, with Matthew McConaughey, mm-hmm. brilliant, and it, the whole cast is just like top. And he plays an elder scientist, and it's a labyrinthian story, a labyrinthian plot. To describe it to anyone would be just so difficult. But I, I just, have you ever seen this Interstellar? I've heard a lot of stuff about it. I heard people really loved it, but no, I've not seen it yet. You should try to check it out because I'd be really interested to see what you have to say about this. Okay. Because you have to stay with it. If the thing is, if you there's a point where you might want to give up, but if you stay with it till the end, it's truly. I think it's rewarding, and it's, in a way, it's a much richer film than 2001. Interesting. Yeah, let's take a look at this. Because 2001 is not a rich film. No, it isn't. It's visually rich. I'll say that. Visually rich, but this is a visually rich too. But at the end of 2001, you're like, oh, okay. You mean you weren't like stoned enough to think that was a deep metaphor for life and human existence? <laughs> No, I, I could do that. No, I could do that straight. But I'm saying this movie takes that to another level. And he's really quite good in this. But he's really quite good in a lot of things. Yes, that's true. And he's done, did voiceovers for a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff recently. He was also an uncredited voice cameo for Michael Nolan's Dunkirk because they work together so well. And so what What have you to say? Well, honestly, I mean, just summing up, even if this guy had just done the original three Harry Palmer films and maybe a few other things like Get Carter, Dress to Kill, and Death Trap, just stop it right there. And I'll say, yeah, we got to do a show about this guy. I really enjoy these. But he's done so much more. I mean, even some of the films we disagreed about, there's some merit, at least to his performance, if not the role itself. And again, he was the first guy to bring a very obvious, very blatant, you know, okay, now this doesn't mean much, but at the time, there was a big class distinction in England, almost like there is in India, where you had the upper class, and you had the middle class, and you had the the down market. Okay, ignore them. And he came in with a very down market accent, and yet was a riveting, likable, central role leading man that people respected, despite the fact that he comes in wearing glasses, he's not exactly, you know, big and macho, but he could pull off scary, he could pull off funny, he could pull off easygoing, he could pull off dangerous, he could pull off officious and stuffy if need be, like in Zulu, to the extent that he does. The guy was a versatile actor, and beyond a character actor, he was also a leading actor. And I don't think that's all that common, at least not in actors of that vintage, because you see what happens with people like Sean Connery. I mean, okay, yeah, he's fantastic in the Bond films, but then look at the other films we talked about. There was like, what, three of them that were great at the rest of them like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> some, of the, some of it's okay. I guess we can get by. Whereas Kane, even in the shittiest of his films, unless it's one of these paycheck cashing jobs like The Hand, he's very much, he will get you engaged in the film such as it is, or at least in his performance. And even if it's bad, you're still kind of riveted on because he 
won't let you get away with that bellowing and overacting that he doesn't hit the hand or the beyond mm. Poseidon adventure or what have you during that really kind of crummy period of the swarm. Bottom line is, like I said earlier, this was one of the few ones that I had delved into recently where, okay, it came about organically from seeing him in other films and whatever else, and I was like, I really like this guy. He's standing up. Let's see some more of his films. Oh, let's see some more of them. Hey, you know what? Let's do a show on him. And I pretty much enjoyed, to one extent or another, everything I saw, with you know, a few exceptions. I found the Italian job very disappointing. There were a couple others. You know, Sleuth. I was expecting a lot from it, and I was like, yeah, it doesn't work so great. Death Trap was much better. You know, that kind of a thing. But it was never like, oh my god, this movie sucks, I can't stand this guy. It was always like, alright, well, you know, he was in it. I guess I was good with that much, at least. So, I do like him, and again, even though I'm kind of knocking him a little bit about this Brexit thing, because he's kind of on the wrong side of history, nonetheless, I understand his rationale for being there. There is a, a framework for this. He's not just being a jingoistic clown. He's actually got some sort of, at least to himself, reasonable position. And he, it's himself, he's not wholeheartedly on board with the idea, but he thinks it's better than the alternative. All right, well, we can kind of deal with that. We can discuss that. If I knew the guy personally, we could debate, well, you're right about this, but you're wrong about that. And I respect that that is the way things are supposed to work in life. You're supposed to have this kind of, I don't want to say middle ground, but a point where people can discuss things with you and possibly you will change your schema to adapt to, oh, well, you know, maybe I was wrong about this. But then again, I'm right about this, this, and this, so I'm not going to change that much, but I'll change a little, you know, that kind of a thing. And I think he's there. I do think he's there. Again, just in terms of his films himself, the guy's likable, the guy's riveting, the guy can pull it off. So I do enjoy Michael Caine. What's your take? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, he's still alive. He's still working. He's one of the he's one of the few living actors from that age we cherish so well yeah. who could still deliver a fucking performance that will make us t- take note. Sure. And he, he's quite capable of doing that, even at his age. Now, recently, I know he did a thing with a bunch of older actors, like a, a going in style kind of thing, where like a bunch of old guys, like Morgan Freeman, him, and like a couple of guys, try to do a heist kind of thing, and didn't do so well. Probably went straight to video on demand. But, you know, as long as he can do it, he's going to keep doing it. Because for a lot of these guys, that keeps them going. Yeah. It keeps him going, and you know, like Chris Nolan, who we name-checked a couple of times tonight, he has a really soft spot, I gather, for Michael Caine <laughs> by putting him in a number of his movies. You know, if he can find a part for him in his next film, great. A nice part, juicy part. I like this guy. You always have liked this guy. Yes, of course, we both agree tonight. There are films we agreed on and disagreed on that, like, good, bad, blah, blah, blah. The bellowing is a thing. It's a stick. He got into <laughs> No, but and we're not kidding you, folks. You could probably YouTube this stuff. Yeah, that's for sure. But he is a class act in a way. You know, he's written books mm-hmm. about acting styles, acting, how to act. Not like how to act like me, because then it would be like, hello? <laughs> you know? No, he's like how to act. You know, he's written two or three books. He has DVDs. I think I've seen these things online, too. And, you know, class act... He knows what's going on, and he hasn't retired as of yet. You know, although that day must be coming soon, as long as he can keep doing it. You know, more kudos to you, Michael Kane. We love you. God bless you. Very much so. So I believe next time we said we were going to do Charlotte Rampling? Yes, we are. We're going to do Charlotte Rampling. A little change for us, but enough quirky movies going on there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our drawing room chat on Michael Caine. Next week, Charlotte Rampling, like Diana Rigg and many others of her generation, began her career as a 60s fashion model. After bit parts in such well-remembered films as Hard Day's Night and The Knack and How to Get It, she stepped into a major role with a seminal swinging London kitchen sink drama, Georgie Girl, which got her noticed and brought her over to Italy where she showed up in two World War II-related epics that made her famous, and perhaps unintentionally helped kick off a certain infamous and short-lived exploitation subgenre in Italy, France, and the U.S., namely Visconti's The Damned and Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter, making minor waves and memorable if brief appearances in everything from existential counterculture opuses like Vanishing Point and much-faded dramedies like Woody Allen's Stardust Memories to neo-noirs like Farewell My Lovely and Angel Heart and cheese fests like Zardoz and Orca. Next time we'll be celebrating the cool yet sexually charged Emma Peel-style appeal of the lovely Charlotte Rampling only here on Weird Scenes. That knowing smile, that piercing gaze, the bow of Charlotte Rampling. So if you'd like to contact us here, comment suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or a musician you'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1, or on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. And of course, we're on iTunes. Uh, you can look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Otherwise, uh, it's iTunes.Apple.com forward slash US forward slash podcast forward slash Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast with dashes between each word. ID 55340244. But again, it's probably easier just to look us up. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema slash Weird Scenes Network now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to close out on? Or? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a longer show than we intended, but hey, Michael Caine. Yeah. Michael Caine. It's Michael Caine. It's a demand. Next week will be a shorter one, so... Uh, long, long, long may you live, Michael Caine, is all I have to say. Please keep going. Yeah, keep the movies coming. So, uh, next time, we'll see you for Charlotte Rampling. Yes, please join us for Charlotte Rampling next time. And uh, stay well, stay frosty. <laughs> yeah, stay frosty, exactly. Like the quarter. <laughs> Good
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. mom with piles of laundry and a motivation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today and my journey is far from finished, but I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? The end? And the light. From the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. On Blog Talk Radio. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage and Lois Hall, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past. Find toys with music, and they still arise from the 
tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio.